everyone, and welcome to the Ranking of the Stars, a podcast in which I, Jack D'Lo Boblik, and my lovely, luscious, last gas station for 50 miles wife. <laughs> Hi, I'm Emmeline D'Lo Boblik. Watch in chronological order every single movie that has won the Oscar for Best Picture, and today's movie is... Rebecca. Rebecca. From 1940. I've already seen the poster. All right. I just, <laughs> I've given into despair at this point. Yep. Heads. Who would have guessed? Yep. Heads, we have silhouettes, though. Yeah, it, we do have a little bit of city at the bottom. It's a, a, a little bit better than the other posters were just heads that we've seen. We're into a new decade, but are haunted by poster designs from the past. Truly, the more things change, the more they stay the same. It's yeah. just heads. <laughs> just heads. We get the two protagonists. Though that does not look like the female. No, it doesn't look She's like her. She's more of a, a brunette in this poster, than, and she appears blonde. Yeah, she's more of uh, like really, really blonde in the movie. But she, yeah, she's more of a brunette, almost redhead. Ah. Yeah, we're being sold the bill of goods. Not only is it boring, it's lying. Yeah. The background is what I call like a, a mix between dark green and teal, and then it's almost like a, a frame in the in the foreground in the middle of that says Rebecca. We have the names of the actors Laurence Olivier and Joan Fontaine, and at the bottom on, on the left we get sort of a, a representation of their house in Mandalay. Yeah, Mandalay and. I suppose that ghostly woman must supposed to be Rebecca, who we never actually see in the film. I would assume so, because she does seem very ghostly here. So, Alternate title for this movie is Piss Off, Ghost. <laughs> you ready for characters and actors? Let's do it. All right. So we have Joan Fontaine, who plays the second Mrs. The Winter. And yes, she does not have a first name because nobody had the decency to even give her a first name. Yeah, this character has no name. I refer to her in the synopsis for the first two times as the young woman, and then I eventually start referring to her as Lucy. You gave her a name? I gave her a name because no one else would. That's it, sweet. It was less clunky than just referring to her as, as... young woman or a second Mrs. DeWinter <laughs> every time she comes up. Yes. So for future reference, that is Lucy. Second Mrs. W. Yep. Uh, we get Laurence Olivier, who plays Mr. George Fortescue Maximilian, Maxim for short, The Winter. The stiffest of stiff upper lips, the upperest of upper crust. I had never heard the name Fortescue mm. before. I think I have, but it's a rare one. Okay. We get uh, Judith Anderson, it's who one plays... Of, one of those ones like Esquire that denotes you're, you are really in the presence of uh, highfalutin. Yeah, ways. but Esquire is not a, a first name. It's a title. Yeah. Here it's... We're meant to, to understand this is one of his middle names. So it's just weird. Uh, as I was saying, Judith Anderson plays Mrs. Danvers. She's their housekeeper and like servant-in-chief. She oversees the other servants in the house. Um, George Sanders plays Jack Favell. He's Rebecca's, Rebecca DeWinter's first cousin and her lover as well. Spoilers. 
We have Reginald Denny, who plays Frank Crawley, who's Maxim's estate manager and friend. Gladys Cooper plays Beatrice Lacey. She's Maxim's sister. Nigel Bruce plays Major Giles Lacey. He's Beatrice's husband. He doesn't play a big role, but I still felt the, the need to mention him because his character is so freaking ridiculous yeah, he, that I felt he needed a, an honorable mention here. He is the most cartoonish character Yes, in this cast of very serious, somber people. He, he was a, a very uh, welcome comic relief. Yeah, he stands out. Yeah. Then two more people. We have Florence Bates, who plays Mrs. Mrs. Edith Von Hopper. She's the employer of the second Mrs. De Winter at the beginning of the movie. Thankfully, only around for the first 10 minutes or so. Thank God. And then we have uh, Leonard Carey, who plays Ben. He's the hermit who lives on the beach near Menderley. Who I often referred to in the synopsis as the owl-eyed man. Owl-eyed man? He has very, I can see that. very big glowing eyes in this movie. Yeah. All right, some information about the movie. It is based on a 1938 novel of the same uh, title, written by Daphne de Maurier. It was directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, which we didn't know going in. Or I didn't know. Um, I didn't know either. I just looked at the title. I didn't uh, look at all the information about the movie before we watched it. Pleasant surprise. Yeah. It was produced by uh, David Ozelsnik, who also produced Gone with the Wind. That was our last movie. You get the same uh, white sign and house opening we got for Gone with the Wind. Yes. Which, for Gone with the Wind, I thought that the house was just a setting not knowing that it was a a signature from the production company and then we expected it this time around their brand opener yeah the premiere date was march 21st 1940 and it happened in miami florida and then the countrywide release occurred on april 12th 1940 the running time is 130 minutes and the budget at the time was a million uh, a little bit uh, over a million dollars, and then it made over six million dollars uh, at the box office. So, not bad overall. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good movie. Yeah. I'd say it. Well, no, we'll have time to uh, discuss it at the end, but uh, overall, like, uh, I'm going to uh, go in first and say it was a good movie. It was I, a really good I enjoyed movie. it. Our first thriller. Yes. Yes. I hope there will be more. Ready for fun facts? Let's do it. All right. In 2018, the Library of Congress selected the movie for preservation with their usual explanation that it is, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Every movie that we've seen, that we've watched so far, that had been selected for preservation by the Library of Congress, this is the exact same excuse or reasoning that they give for preserving it. Their boilerplate quote. It's important. Yeah. It's important to throw it on the pile. <laughs> yeah. I would go with aesthetically significant out of those three choices. Yeah, culturally or his- uh, historically, no, but aesthetically significant, definitely. All right. Hitchcock has a cameo in it, which apparently is one of his signature moves as a director uh, because he also had cameos in his other movies. This one happens towards the end of the movie, and we only see his back outside of a a phone box on the street. Yeah, I watched this scene again for the synopsis, and 
you can't tell. You can't tell that it's him. No, no. who anyone is. They're just they're indistinct shapes just walking by a phone booth. Yeah. Like I guess that's the back of his neck. Uh, mm. <laughs> were there other people also yeah. walking around? There so were... yeah, so you wouldn't know who's who. Yeah, he was just one of the five dudes that walked by the phone booth. Alrighty one then. One of the one of the back wearing a suit and a hat, so you only see like his hands and the back of his neck. I would love. I'm gonna have to. I'm curious now. I'm gonna have to go and look at the synopsis of the Wikipedia pages maybe for uh rear rear window and vertigo to see if he oh and which scene he has cameos he's the original stan lee yeah that's what i was thinking zelsnick and hitchcock didn't really see eye to eye on a few details apparently which led hitchcock to edit the film quote in camera meaning that he only shot what he wanted to see in the final product in order to limit Zelsnick's power in the editing phase, which Zelsnick apparently still had a lot of power and made sure that he was coming in every day at the editing phase to have some sort of control over the final product. I guess this was early in Hitchcock's career where people could still wrest power away from him. Yeah. 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 In the novel, Mrs. Danvers is much older than she is in the movie. Uh, she's more of a mother figure for Rebecca, apparently. We don't know much about her in this movie, but her past is explained in the 2020 remake, interestingly. That makes sense, because she moves like a very old woman. Yes, yeah. She always moves very gently and softly and just kind of glides around. Yeah, in the remake, we learn that Mrs. Danvers had known Rebecca since she was a child, and she followed her as a housekeeper when she married Maxim. In the film, Mrs. Danvers just seems to have an unhealthy obsession with Rebecca, which led some people to believe that she was in love with Rebecca. Mm. And in fact, the Brain Office, which uh, is the censorship board in Hollywood, had to specify that they prohibited any hint of a lesbian relationship between Rebecca and Mrs. Danvers in the movie. Yeah, I could see there, you interpreting this as having romantic aspect to it. It's yeah, because she's clearly super obsessed with Rebecca, wants to keep her memory alive, and yeah. And the fact that she had a unique relationship with Rebecca that no one else had. Right. Because right. Rebecca was one of the only people she revealed her true nature to. Yes. Uh, speaking of the 2020 remake it features army hammer who people might have seen in call me by your name as mr the winter lily james whose name i couldn't find last uh last time we talked about this movie she played the younger version of meryl strip's character in mamma mia 2 she's the second mrs the winter does she get a name in the remake she doesn't either no <laughs> that they were still very faithful <laughs> to that in the remake uh, we have Kristen Scott Thomas as Mrs. Danvers. Kristen, uh, Kristen Scott Thomas, people might have seen her in Four Weddings and a Funeral, The English Patient. She was in a French movie also called Arsène Lupin. And I believe it, it was in the 2010s. The Gentleman Thief. Yeah, she actually lived in France for many years because she was married to a Frenchman. Mm. And she has always been a, a Francophile. 
And we have Anne Dowd as Mrs. Van Hopper. Anne Dowd, if people are watching The Handmaid's Still on Hulu, she plays Aunt Nydia. She's a very cruel person. She has some compassionate moments with the uh, the handmaids, but she's a very cruel person. I, I, I thought that the character of Mrs. Van Hopper suited her. Yeah, very overbearing. Yes. Um, very blunt also. She, that's how she is also in The Handmaid's, uh, the handmaid's Tale. The movie still has a 98% approval rate on Rotten Tomatoes. And critics seem to agree that it is a brilliant film, a suspenseful masterpiece, which, ge- which gives gothic vibes. It certainly does an incredible job of creating a mood and an atmosphere. Yeah. More so than I think any of the other movies we've watched so far. Yes. And two last things. It was, the movie was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, including... Best Director, Best Actor for Laurence Olivier, Best Actress for Joan Fontaine, Best Supporting Actress for Judith Anderson, Best Screenplay, Best Art Direction for Black and White, Best Film Editing, Best Original Score, and Best Special Effects. It won only two Academy Awards for Outstanding Production, which was the title for Best Picture uh, before, and Best Cinematography in Black and White. And then for because we're starting a new decade, I decided to add something more to the fun facts and give people an idea of the other movies that were nominated for Best Picture that same year because we're I think I feel like we're starting uh, to be in the time that people would recognize titles. The loser's bracket. <laughs> yes. So in that year, we have Rebecca, obviously, then All This and Heaven 2, Foreign Correspondent, The Grapes of Wrath. I know that one. The Great Dictator. Uh, I know that one, too. It would have been great also to have The Great Dictator uh, to watch for a best picture. Yeah, the speech at the end of that movie is great. Yeah. Kitty Foyle, The Letter, The Long Voyage Home, Our Town, and the Philadelphia Story. Out of all these, I would have loved yeah, uh, to watch the, the Grapes of Wrath or The Great Dictator as well. Which one seems least appealing by title? I think it's Kitty Foyle. What the fuck is that? I don't know. It's either Kitty Foyle or Our Town. Yeah, I was going to go... If I had to choose a, a top three, it would be Kitty Foyle, The Letter, or Our Town. The letter at least implies some amount of intrigue. Our town just sounds like you're going to wander around a small hamlet and you're like, this is our town barber shop. <laughs> it's been operated by the same family for 135 years. <laughs> <laughs> Cinematic equivalent of watching paint dry, but I'm yeah. probably totally wrong. Maybe. I have one more fun fact, but I'm going to keep it for uh, when we're going along with the synopsis because I don't want to reveal too much about the movie. Alrighty. Let's do it. The plot. We open with a female narrator explaining the dream she had last night while the camera slowly moves down an overgrown path shrouded in mist as the full moon hangs overhead. We just... From the first second of this movie, we're just establishing mood and and tone with the, the spookiness. This is what she says. 
Last night I dreamed I went to Mandalay again. Seemed to me I stood by the iron gate leading to the drive, and for a while I could not enter, for the way was barred to me. Then, like all dreamers, I was possessed of sudden supernatural powers and passed like a spirit through the barrier before me. The drive wound away in front of me, twisting and turning as it had always done, but as I advanced I was aware that a change had come upon it. Nature had come into its own again, and little by little had encroached upon the drive with long, tenacious fingers. And this is reflected as the, the camera moves, the trail it's walking on is all overgrown. Mm. On and on wound the poor thread it had once been, and finally there was Mandalay, secretive and silent. Time could not mar the perfect symmetry of those walls. But moonlight can play hard tricks upon the thing, and suddenly it seemed to me that light came from the windows, and then a cloud came upon the moon and hovered an instant like a dark hand before a face. The illusion went with it, and I looked upon a desolate shell. There's no whisper of the past about its staring walls. We can never go back to Mandalay, that much is certain. But sometimes in my dreams, I do go back to the strange days of my life, which began for me in the south of France. Mm -hmm. Transition to a shot of waves crashing against jagged rocks at the bottom of a cliff, and the camera pans up to show a well-dressed man standing on the edge. Shots of waves crashing against rocks is a recurring visual yeah. in this film. He stares into the ocean and inches slowly closer to the fall. A young woman holding a sketchbook walks up the trail to his side sees him on the brink and yells don't startled the man turns and asks her what she's doing she awkwardly mumbles that she was just out for a walk and he tells her to keep going then and she does we then get a quick shot of the entire city of monte carlo beautiful just tumbling yeah. down the hillside into the ocean yep and then the lobby of a luxury hotel where the young woman from the trail sits next to a middle-aged woman who complains that she hasn't seen a single well-known personality in the hotel yet. This is Mrs. Edith Van Hopper. She is yes. a garden variety, pearl clutcher and busybody, the type of which we have seen at least half a dozen times. Oh, for sure. In all the movies we've watched so far. She's a, a wealthy woman. With nothing better to do than being everyone else's business. Yeah, and traveling around the world, and uh, she has the second Mrs., the future second Mrs. Uh, the Winter with her, who's... The young woman. Yeah, the young woman who's her companion. Yep. She is made from the same mold as Mrs. Kirby and that uh, school marm from Cimarron. Yeah. And all the old women in Gone with the Wind, all cast from the same mold. Yeah, she opens her mouth and is very often to say something mean and blunt. Yeah, criticize and critique and yeah. and fawn when a, a gentleman is in the room. But then with other women, she's very, yeah, henpecky. Yeah. Just then, the man from the trail walks into the lobby. And the middle-aged woman exclaims that it's Max de Winter and calls him over. She introduces herself as Edith Van Hopper and invites Max to join her for coffee and tries to send the young woman away to fetch the coffee, but Max insists that the young woman stay and have coffee with them. They make small talk, and Edith invites him to have a drink in her suite sometime. 
Max tries to include the young woman in the conversation, but Edith says she's just a silly girl who's only good for doing small tasks, though he could have her help him pack if he needs it. Max says that it's quicker to travel alone and abruptly leaves. Edith is surprised and wondered if it might be that he hasn't recovered from his wife's recent death. It felt awkward to me when she invited him to have a drink in essentially in her bedroom in her in her suite like she's much older than than he is like she seems like she could be old enough to be his mother it just felt very slimy and awkward she is very mildly flirtatious yes yes but i also get the sense that she's all talk and and if he actually made a move she'd be scandalized and throw him out (laughs) And she's just really looking to be around famous people, I think, or rich people, at least. Yes. Just looking looking for some coattails to ride yeah. in her later years. And not helped by the fact that also Max is an incredibly awkward person in every scene he's in, so... Which is completely different in the remake. Like, the... I was going to talk about that at some point. The... I don't know if it's specific to Laurence Olivier or if that was how he was supposed to play the character of Max in the Winter, but the army hammer in the remake is the opposite of Laurence Olivier. He's very he's very warm. He's there's a lot of um oh, what's the word? Charm. Charm. But there's a good connection also between... Oh, we actually uh, have chemistry? Yeah, they actually have chemistry. Instead of this movie where it just feels like a person smashing two dolls together? Yeah. Now kiss. Yeah. Yeah, Max in this movie, uh, he has the look of the suave gentleman that we've seen in other movies of this era, but just none of the grace and charm that they have. Yeah, he in the character that he plays to me, he's very comparable to like a, a Clark Gable. Like he's de- definitely has the the elegance and the charisma. Visually, yes. yes. But whenever he opens his mouth, he he speaks way too quickly, and he never seems very sure of himself. And he was also before he was a movie actor. Uh, Laurence Olivier did a lot of theater work, so I wonder if that plays into how he became you know how if he was more comfortable maybe on stage than he was being on a, on a movie set yeah it does make sense narratively for yeah. the the strain and the burden the character is under yeah the next morning the young woman sits down in the hotel dining room to eat breakfast alone and knocks over the flower vase on the table which catches the attention of max sitting at his own table she makes a, a big to-do about this oh i'm so clumsy and the waiter comes over and it, oh it's it's a scandal Max invites her to sit with him and apologizes for his rudeness yesterday. Living alone has made him bullish, he says. Hmm. He asks if Edith is a friend or family and is told that she's neither. The young woman is a paid companion. He asks if she has any family and she tells him her mother died long ago and last summer her father did as well. Then she talks about how her father was a painter who painted the same tree over and over because his philosophy was that if you find one perfect thing, you should never leave it. Max says he has similar beliefs and invites her out for a drive. We rejoin them at a small viewpoint on the cliffside 
over the sea while Lucy tries to sketch a portrait of Max. Do you remember this portrait? It felt more like a caricature. Yes, it was really goofy looking. <laughs> yes. Did they have this scene in the movie where she was sketching a portrait of him? No. Oh, we don't get a, a comparison to have. She still uh, sketches in the movie, but uh, she doesn't do a sketch of the him. The camera does not betray her in the way it does no. in this movie and no. show the, the sloppiness of her work. I almost laughed because it was expecting, you know, an actual portrait and it just this cartoonish. He's like got ears that are too big and his nose is colored in like he's drunk. Yeah, that's another difference with, uh, between this one and the remake. Like, she seems very, she is very innocent looking, but also acts very innocent and happy-go-lucky in the in this one. In the remake, she's far less innocent and uh, looks more mature. Not as naive. Yeah. Sketching a portrait of Max, but is having difficulty because his expression changes so quickly, which is ironic because he's stone face through the majority of this movie <laughs> yes. she tells him she saw his home mandalay on a postcard once and was embarrassed that she had to ask what it was max replies that to him mandalay is just the place he was born and lived all his life and stares out to sea with a troubled expression after a few moments of silence lucy talks about how she'd like to go swimming but there's a strong undertow here though she has no fear of drowning does he Max turns and walks back to the car and tells her without turning back that he'll take her home. No reply. Just walks away. Back in the hotel, Edith sits in bed taking medicine from a nurse, and Lucy walks in just in time to hear Edith talking about how Max's wife, Rebecca, drowned in a sailing accident, and how much she adored her and how devastated he was to lose her. Edith is uh, laid up in bed with a cold. Yes. At this point, that's why she's not able to join them for the day's festivities and has yeah. hired a nurse to take care of her. Yeah, because she can't do anything on her own. No, she's just sitting in bed surrounded by food and newspapers and stuff. And she tells r the young woman to, to hurry up and come in because she wants to play rummy. Yeah. The next morning, Lucy asks Edith if she can take a tennis lesson. She's got her tennis outfit and racket and everything when she comes in. And she is granted permission. Uh, Edith thinks that she has a crush on the, the tennis instructor. And so she's, oh, go have your fun. Yeah. And also, you know, if she, if Edith is in bed, then there is nothing else for, for the young lady to do. So she might as well enjoy Monte Carlo. Yep. As she leaves the hotel, she runs into Max, who asks if she actually likes tennis that much. She says not particularly, so he snatches her racket away and says they'll go for a drive instead. And the camera, like, follows him as he walks over to the side and places the racket behind some bushes mm -hmm. as if that's going to be significant in some way. <laughs> and it is not whatsoever. <laughs> I don't know why we did that. In the... I'm sorry I keep coming back to the remake, no? but in the remake, it he's, their encounters come in the form of... He's sending her notes, like... Want to come for a drive? Ooh. Want to come for a swim? Let's go to the beach. And she she ends up like keeping those little notes that he sends her. Ah, we see them in the car for a few seconds, and they have the the fake background behind them. Yeah. Although, props to them for actually. There's a a point where it goes along a curve, mm -hmm. and he actually does move his hands on the wheel as if they're driving around the curve. Yeah. So they're at least paying attention to what the <laughs> what the the playback is doing then it's the next day and lucy escapes edith again by pretending to be going to tennis lessons 
and then we're treated to a letter Edith has written to Max telling him he's a naughty boy for not returning his calls and promising to entertain him once she's over her cold. Yeah, and she also comments to the nurse a few times, are you sure you dropped off my letters with Max? We don't get much comedy in this movie, but yeah, that little bit. This of, was a good one. Of her, yeah desperately trying to get his attention and just being ignored and just not picking up on the fact that he doesn't give a shit. <laughs> then a quick shot of Max and Lucy dancing outside on a patio and then Lucy using her tennis lesson excuse once again and being told that this is the last time because Edith is getting rid of her nurse after today and Lucy will be in charge of taking care of her again. So in the remake they do much more than going dancing. They have lunch together, they have dinner together, they go out, they go to the beach and have sex on the beach. <gasps> the Not the cocktail, actual sex on the beach. The horizontal monster mash in front of the ocean. Yep. They anger the ghost. As Lucy and Max drive along the scenic road, Lucy tells Max that she wishes she could put her memories in bottles so they could be experienced over and over and that she'd have a whole shelf full of bottles from the past few days. Sometimes those bottles have demons in them that appear when you're trying to forget, says Max cryptically. That was grim. Like yes. she's, she's having a sweet moment trying to tell him that she's having a good time, and he's like, well, sometimes there's demons. <laughs> I've had a beautiful time these past few days, and he's, sometimes you choke on the blood of your past nightmares. Thanks, Max. <laughs> After a few seconds, Lucy responds, I wish I were a woman of 36, in black satin and a string of pearls. You wouldn't be here with me if you were, says Max. She then asks why he's been spending so much time with her. It's obvious he wants to be kind, but why is she the object of his charity? She's very dense and innocent in this interpretation. He pulls the car over and stops so he can look at her, and tells her that her company has blotted out the past for him more than all the lights of Monte Carlo. But if she thinks it was just kindness and charity, she can leave the car now and walk home. Lucy begins to cry, and after a few moments, Max hands her a handkerchief. And she says, thank you, Mr. De Winter. And he tells her to call him by his first name, and to promise to never to wear black satin with pearls, and to never be 36 years old. She promises, and the drive continues, and he, like, kisses his finger and then plants it on her forehead. This was not a charming way to reveal your feelings to someone, I thought. No, it was, there was no passion in it. It was just, it was very kind of matter-of-fact, and there was no, it was, like, Yeah, it just went from being rude to being very, yeah. There's no tenderness in it. No. It did not, it was not a... a a cathartic moment of revelation it was just like a yeah he made her cry and then gave her a handkerchief and kept driving and yeah i would not have been i would not have been surprised if he had just like turned to her and was like i like you you idiot yeah it almost it felt like that did not endear me yeah to max next scene lucy is arranging a vase of flowers when she's called into eva's bedroom Edith has just received news that her daughter is engaged, and they must leave immediately for New York to go see her. Lucy rushes back to her own room and tries to call Max, but is told he's out riding and won't be back until noon. Fade to a shot of a clock on the wall with the time showing 11.50, and everything is packed up and ready to go. 
Lucy goes back to her room under the pretense of looking for a book and makes another attempt to call Max, but Edith comes in and Lucy has to quickly hang up so Edith doesn't catch on to what she's really doing. Yeah. They head down to the car and Lucy says she wants to leave a forwarding address in case they find the book that she was pretending to look for and runs back inside. She has the front desk call Max's room, but there's no answer, so she heads directly to his room. She meets him there, explains the situation, and tells him she's there to say goodbye, and he's coming out of the shower as this happens. Max sits for a moment, digests the news, and then heads into the bathroom to put his clothes on. While changing, he asks if she'd prefer to go to America or Mandalay, and Lucy asks if he needs a secretary or a maid or something, to which he responds, No, I meant marriage, you little fool. <laughs> yeah, I'm asking you to marry me. Yeah, so he does call her an idiot this time. Yes. She protests a bit, saying they live in separate worlds, but he assures her none of that matters, and she agrees. He tells her it's a shame she has to grow up. Uh, immediately smacks her hand. They're sitting next to her, and he, yeah, he, it's not an affectionate pat. He's like, like whack, whack, whack. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's so awkward and, and not charming in the least. I also don't understand the, the obsession with it's a shame that she has to grow up and let, promise me you'll never be older than 36. Yeah, that becomes a recurring thing, too. And he also says later that she should have married someone her own age, which seems to imply that Max is supposed to be older than her, but they... We don't really know how old they are. They both look like they're in their early 20s. He does not look like an old man at no. all. So just bad casting, maybe. Uh, and then he calls the front desk so Edith can be called up and given the news. While they wait for her arrival, Max tells Lucy that this isn't a proper proposal. A proper proposal would be done in an observatory with her in a white frock holding a red rose while violin music played in the distance and him making violent love to her behind a palm tree. Where was my proposal? Where was this proposal when you asked me to, uh, to marry you? So specific. Well, ours happened over Zoom, so. <laughs> yeah. Violent love behind a palm tree. D uh, surprisingly graphic for the time. Were there any palm trees in the remake? I'm sure there were, because it's still supposed to be Monte Carlo. But no violent love happening behind them? No. What a missed opportunity. Some sweet, sweet love happening on the beach, though. Edith arrives, is given the news, and offers to help plan the wedding because Lucy has no mother. At this point, like, God, please, no, go, go to New York. Do not haunt us with your presence. Max spares us this torture, and after he uh, leaves to get Lucy's bags from the car, Edith digs into Lucy, telling her Max doesn't actually love her, he just can't live alone anymore, and that she doesn't have any idea how to be a great lady. Uh, Lucy suggests that Edith leave before she misses her train. Yeah. And she, yeah, just complete dressing down like, oh, uh, I've heard that Englishmen have strange tastes and just being a shitlord. And then basically at the door turns around and wishes her good luck and then basically like snorts and walks away. I am so glad that Max did not let her plan the wedding, though. I was... Thank God, no. Ten minutes of her was enough. She was, uh, a fun fact that I told you after, off mic, she was offering to, you know, give her away and give her a trousseau and stuff like that. And for those of you who don't know what a trousseau is, it's, it's a little bit old-fashioned, but 
it was tradition for the family of the bride to put together like a an old wooden box almost uh, usually with bed sheets and underwear and nightgowns and stuff like that for for the bride usually that's stuff that would go immediately with her on her honeymoon that would follow her in her house with her husband a bridal starter kit yep underwear and dresses what more could you need to be a bride in the 40s we have a quick scene of them getting their marriage certificate and then we rejoin them as they drive towards mandalay Another fun fact, they get married in, in the south of France uh, at the at City Hall. And as they leave, the, the I would assume that it's the mayor who's uh, on the balcony of the of the little City Hall. There, and they're like, oh, monsieur, monsieur, you forgot your uh, carnet de mariage. And so when you get married in France, you get a carnet de mariage or uh, what is called now a carnet de famille. And it's... It has various pages to that has a, a record of when you got married. It has your names, uh, your signatures, and then in the following pages, it uh, records also anytime you have a child, the child is recorded on here. Like you get all the information about the name of the child, the their date of birth, their place of birth, how how much uh, they weighed when they were born, how tall they were when they were born, and it just it's to me it's a sweet thing because it it's like an actual physical trace of your family. Yep, the family record book. Yeah. And they forgot theirs, so uh, whoever it is that have it has to just drop it from the second story and it flutters down and they catch it. Yeah. And then after that, we rejoin them as they drive towards Mandalay. They enter. This estate is so enormous that they enter into the Iron Gate that she was at in her dream. And then they still have to drive for like a good, what, five, seven minutes before they get there. Max gives Lucy a coat to cover her head as they drive because it starts to rain and tells her not to worry about the upkeep of the house. The head maid, Mrs. Danvers, will see to that. They turn the final corner, and through the rain-soaked windshield, we see Mandalay in all its glory. And we have seen some large estates in this movie, but this is by far the largest. This is an honest-to-God castle. It is huge. Huge and sprawling. And I like... The, this is where the, the mood and tone of the movie takes a shift, and I like that they actually visually represent that with the rain. It was all sunshine and happiness while they're out in Monte Carlo, and then as soon as they come to you the... You get to the house, and it's like, it's not going to be a happy place. Yeah, it starts to rain, and the mood starts to shift, and everything becomes very grim and, and dark and depressive. They enter together and are greeted by the entire staff standing at attention. They're all just lined up. At attention, like stone faced, it's very creepy and unsettling because they don't. There's no cheer, or like welcome back or anything. They're just standing there and just staring at them yeah. as, as they come in. I don't remember if Maxim says it in the in this one, but in the remake, he's like, "Oh, I hate when they do that." <laughs> the camera moves in towards them, and Mrs. Danvers steps into frame. She wasn't part of the initial lineup, but as the camera goes, she just like walks in. So the camera, is, when she walks in, the camera is already like doing a close-up of yeah. her very clearly like and here she is presenting her uh, giving us a close-up of her stony expression she's a very pale emotionless she's basically just a ghost that that haunts the house which 
in this version of the story, it it's clearly makeup. Like they definitely put like a, a lot of like whitish makeup on her to to make her seem even more stern and look like a ghost. If you look at if when you're watching the remake, Kristen Scott Thomas, who plays Mrs. Danvers, doesn't need any of that makeup. Like it, it's almost like she's very natural, but she has such a stern expression on her face that she doesn't need any of that to be creepy yeah she reminded me of the witch from wizard of oz before yeah. dorothy goes to oz yeah. yeah she calmly informs lucy that all her needs will be taken care of uh, lucy tells her that's unnecessary and drops her gloves in front of her and they both bend down uh, to get the gloves at the same time it's it's a contrast because uh, lucy's come in and she's not wearing the same upscale clothes that they have and she's mm. wet from the rain and her hair is disheveled from having the the coat on her head so here's all these uh, prim and proper servants and she's the lady of the house now but she looks like a mess you know yeah. she looks like a commoner and then and we get a, a little moment of hesitation as she drops her uh, gloves as to like who is going to bend down and pick it up and they yeah do it at the same time yeah. transition scene of the face of an ornate clock with the shadows of rain from a nearby window passing over it. Yeah, I think they use this transition scene a couple times where it's just the face of a clock and then there's a window nearby where it's raining and so you just get the shadows of the raindrops mm -hmm. on the clock. I like that transition a lot. Everything, once we get into the to Mandalay, becomes very moody and, as they described it, gothic and just very oppressive and mm. suffocating almost. And we see Lucy getting situated in her new room with the assistance of a, a common uh, low-tier maid. There's a knock on her door and Mrs. Danvers enters. She apologizes for Lucy having to make do with the lesser maid. It's only until Lucy's own maid arrives. Her name, I don't know if she's given a name. I don't remember her, the maid being given a, a name in this one, but in the remake she's called Claris. Claris? No, she's definitely given. I think she's only in two scenes. So this one and one other scene when uh, Lucy's putting her costume on for the ball later. I think mm -hmm. that's the only... And she only speaks in the costume scene yeah. with like one line. So uh, Lucy tells her she doesn't have or need her own maid as in, and is informed a lady of her standing must have a personal attendant. Miss Danvers then goes on to tell Lucy the room was recently redecorated because until now Max primarily used the West Wing, which offers the only view of the sea. Lucy inquires as to how long she's uh, Miss Danvers has been at Mandalay and is told that Miss Danvers joined the household when the previous Miss De Winter was a bride. And the obvious implication about not using the West Wing is that Max does not want to look at the sea and be reminded of his first wife's death anymore. So now. Yeah, and also that was where their bedroom, or at least the former Mrs. De Winter's bedroom, was. Yes. The West Wing. It's a cursed area now. At the end of their conversation, Danvers and Lucy leave the room together, and as they walk through the massive rooms and hallways, Danvers points out a large white door leading to the West Wing. Behind it is the most beautiful room in the house, the only one that looks down to the sea. It was Mrs. De Winter's room. Mm -hmm. And this is the first time we see the dog, too, because the dog is laying in front of the doors. Yes. It's a, a black dog black uh, small but long-haired dog his name's jasper yeah as we learn later and the fact that he was laying down in front of the bedroom doors felt to me like we're meant to understand that he's missing uh, the former mrs the winter yeah 
also and that he's longing for her and I almost I I thought that there would be more done with Jasper like he would maybe try and bite <laughs> Lucy or <laughs> I expected I yeah him to be a larger part as well to like eventually lead Lucy to some shock and reveal because it's clear from the moment that she comes that there's going to be some sort of twist yes there there's just a tension in the air and you know something is coming and i thought the dog was going to be part of the revelation yeah but unfortunately was not as we shall see the next day the rain has cleared and lucy enters a room and encounters a man named crawley who manages the estate for max max then enters as well and tells crawley they have some business to attend to as they leave, he informs Lucy that his sister Beatrice and her husband are coming over for lunch that day. Beatrice is very straightforward, and if she doesn't like her, she'll probably just tell her to her face. I also thought that that was awkward for him to say. Like, that does not set up a nice atmosphere for his bride. Like, oh, if she doesn't like you, you're going to know immediately. Yeah, like if, that. if she thinks you're a piece of shit, she'll tell you. Okay, bye. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> pressure's on. He does tell her that he will be back in time to protect her from it. I almost expected him not to be back in time. After breakfast, Lucy wanders into the library and the head butler, Fritz, follows her in and apologizes for the fireplace not being lit. The former Mrs. De Winter always wrote her correspondence in the morning room after mm. breakfast. Lucy says that will be fine, but um, which way is the morning room again? <laughs> and then she's directed there. Once she gets there, she finds a desk with several notebooks laid out on top, all with large R's on the cover. So the desk still arranged as if Rebecca is going to, to sit down and continue yeah. her correspondence. She opens the cover of one and finds Rebecca's signature and then sits down at the desk just in time for the phone to ring. She answers it and tells the caller they're mistaken. Mrs. DeWinter has been dead for over a year and then hangs up. Oops. And as soon as she hangs up, she does the, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> I'm Mrs. DeWinter. Ah, oh, fah, jeez. It doesn't feel like it, though, yet. No. I mean, clearly in this scene, she she's mistaken about who Mrs. DeWinter is. And she it doesn't feel like she belongs in the house yet. She's still getting very much getting her bearings and doesn't know where to go, what to do, uh, you know. Who, who do I write letters to? Do I have to write letters to anyone? It, it's it's a mess. Nobody is explaining to her what her role is supposed to be as Maxim's wife. No, it's all assumed that uh, the truths of her position are supposed to be self-evident and they're used to being around you know people of uh, good breeding in high society that just have... Uh, had the the rules ingrained in them since childhood yeah. so and everything is meant to uh, for her to feel that she's not in the right place and that she doesn't belong yes it does an excellent job of making her feel completely out of her depth yeah and like a fish out of water and she's just so clearly floundering in her new position and no one is assisting her in any way whatsoever it's almost like the realistic uh, sour reality of the the fairy tale of the the peasant being married by the prince yeah and then coming into that life and just not knowing how to operate at all and just being completely overwhelmed and being crushed under the weight of it all mm. i like that aspect of it and on top of that 
the stuff with all the R's and the ghost of Rebecca is yes. very much present in the background. Yes, Rebecca is just a looming specter yeah. still. That's why I made the alternate title Piss Off Ghost because, <laughs> yeah, she just looms over everything in this movie. Yeah. Miss Danvers enters at that moment and tells her that's the house phone and it was probably the gardener wanting to know what his chores were for the day. Mrs. Danvers heard about Beatrice coming for lunch and has prepared a menu for Lucy to approve. You'll notice that she left a blank space for sauces. Uh, the former Mrs. DeWinter was very particular about sauces. Lucy has no opinions. Uh, whatever Miss Danvers suggests will be fine. Uh, Danvers leaves and Lucy picks up one of the notebooks, accidentally bumping a china cupid off the corner of the desk and it shatters on the floor. She picks up the pieces and stuffs them into a drawer of the desk to hide them. Yikes. You know, you can just feel her. She's asked these questions about, oh, and what would you prefer for the menu? And she's just like, I, I don't, what? What, what are sauces? F food is good. I like food. I don't. <laughs> it, and I sympathize because this is the way I feel whenever I'm asked questions about like, oh, what kind of curtains would you prefer or things of that nature? I just, I don't, I fucking whatever. I don't, I can't, I try and think about it and I just hear static. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do this. I have no opinions. Whatever is fine. Anything, literally anything. Next scene is Beatrice and her husband arriving in the main hall while Lucy spies from the second floor. Beatrice complains that Max isn't there to greet them, and her and her husband are led to a waiting room. Lucy approaches the waiting room slowly and overhears the husband wondering how Danvers feels about being ordered around by an ex-chorus girl. How do you know she's an, a chorus girl? Uh, Beatrice asks. Well, he picked her up in the south of France, didn't he? Is the reply. They notice Lucy in the doorway then, and as they shake her hand, Beatrice says she isn't at all what she was expecting, and her husband says she's exactly what he expected. He, like, turns and says, see what I tell you, <laughs> as he shakes Lucy's hand. And then Beatrice dismisses her husband. She is like, go away, you're causing problems. It's a very <laughs> terse dismissal. Yeah, he is awkward in a very different way than all the other characters I, are awkward. I but... don't think he's awkward. I think he's very jovial and slightly buzzed most of the times. Probably. So he's he's just a very uh, yeah, jovial, doesn't care about social niceties. He's too rich to give a shit. So yeah. Yeah, just uh, tells it like it is. Uh, she dis Beatrice dismisses her husband, and Lucy and her sit down to talk. She asks Lucy how she's getting along with Danvers, who must be extremely jealous. What do you mean? asks Lucy. At which point, I thought that it was going to be revealed that maybe Mrs. Danvers was in love with Maxim. Yeah, that, I thought that's where that was going as well. Oh, Maxim didn't tell you? She simply adored Rebecca. And then we move on to the lunch itself. I believe that's the scene where she says that and then Lucy just turns her head away a little bit and it's a like close-up profile shot of her mm -hmm. and then the background dims. Yeah. And then her face dims. Yes. I think that was that scene and we transition to lunch. Oh, she adored Rebecca and then that's supposed to be a, a shock to Lucy. We move on to the lunch itself, where Beatrice prods Max about when he's going to start throwing parties again, and her husband grills Lucy on her hobbies. 
After striking out on all his inquiries, he asks Mass Max what his wife is good for, and is told she sketches. He's he's just going down this list of do you sail no i don't sail do, do you hunt do you hunt no i don't hunt oh you must hunt you must hunt oh do you ride horses no i don't oh you must ride horses everyone rides horses he also he has this very comical attitude where she gives him answers but he doesn't listen to them because no. she tells him that he she doesn't ride and then he somehow just tells her oh they must go on a ride one day and it, oh that's right you don't yeah that's right you don't. it just doesn't pay attention to whatever she says. Yeah, he's not talking with her. He's just talking at her. Yeah. He doesn't even look at her as he's talking to her. He's just eating whatever food is in front of him. Yeah, he's just shoveling uh, food into his gob and go, oh, you have to hunt. You have to ride. It's what we all do. Yeah. He asks Max, Max what his wife is good for, is told she sketches, and his reply is, well, at least it's not sailing. Oops. And then he covers his mouth in this very comical... Like, very feminine girlish way that is is comical for a, a man of his disposition and size yeah like oops tea fade to a scene of lucy and beatrice alone with beatrice giving advice on how lucy can improve her appearance as uh, she says i can tell from the way you dress that you don't care how you look jesus that yeah though i felt i felt bad for her like she's she's not dressed like plain i mean she's not very, very plainy or badly for herself she's dressed really proper she's not dressed like she's rich yes she's just dressed like a normal person but she's also not dressed like a chorus girl yep and she's like oh have you ever thought about doing this to your hair you could pull it back like this just giving her little tips on how to not look like a commoner anymore mm. Lucy takes the abuse with a smile, and as they walk to the entrance, Beatrice congratulates Lucy on how happy Max appears. This time last year, they were very worried about him. It's hard to know what goes on in his quiet mind sometimes, though he does lose his temper and fly into a rage from time to time. And then she, oh, ha ha ha, after she says that, as if yeah. flying into a rage is, uh... As if it's amusing. Oh, yeah, it's just an amusing quirk that some people have. Yeah. Sometimes they smash things against the wall. Isn't it, isn't it uh, grand? The in-laws then take their leave, and the newlyweds decide to go for a walk, taking the dog with them. Ooh, I just remembered about how this sequence goes down in the remake. So they somehow, Beatrice and her husband somehow bring their grandmother along with them oh, they make up a character they made up a character and they the grandmother has either alzheimer's or some sort of dementia and she keeps Does looking she... at uh, at lucy and she's like so who are you <laughs> and she tells him that you know she's married to maxim and all that and she's like you're not Rebecca. Yeah. And it just creates this whole drama around the scene because then, you know, the new Mrs. De Winter, uh, she's offended. She's also doesn't know where to go, what to do. She's like horrified that, you know, even the, the grandmother who's lost her mind still has, still remembers Rebecca. And she's like, you're, you're not Max's wife. You're not Maxim's wife. Yeah. Who are you? Just hammering the point home yeah just literally spelling it out you're not rebecca <laughs> i couldn't tell although well, they decide to go for a walk and uh take the dog with them and that's where we learn its name is jasper come on jasper need to burn some of that fat off says max 
As they stroll on a path overlooking the sea, Jasper runs down a long wooden staircase to the beach, despite Max trying to call him back repeatedly. They follow him down to the beach, but he's run out of sight, and although Max assures Lucy in an increasingly agitated manner that Jasper will find his own way back, she runs off after him. She catches up to him as he lays in front of the door of a small cottage, sitting on the beach. The door slowly opens as Lucy moves to pick up Jasper, and a small old man with huge owl eyes comes out. I know that dog. It's from the house, he says. But he's speaks, he speaks like that. He yeah. speaks that very like absent-minded, supposed to indicate that he's in a mental fog and he's not all there. Yeah. Lucy asks if he has anything inside she could use as a leash, and after a few seconds of silence, decides to go in and look for himself. He just stands and stares at her after she says that, so she just kind of edges around him and goes inside the cottage. Inside is a fully furnished room covered in dust and enormous cobwebs, and on a side table rests a handkerchief with the initial R on it. She quickly finds a rope that suits her needs, and back outside, the owl-eyed man asks her not to tell anyone he was there. I wasn't doing nothing, just sorting my shells, mm. as he says. A moment of silence, and he says, She's gone to the sea, hasn't she? She'll never come back no more. Lucy agrees she'll never come back, and leaves. She returns to the bottom of the wooden stairs to find that Max is no longer there, then finds him at the top, clearly upset. She asks what's wrong, and Max barks that she deliberately went after Jasper, even when he told her not to because he didn't want to think about the cottage, and neither would she if she had his memories. They should have never come back to Mandalay. It was a mistake. I... I just hated the, this part. I hated the scene because he's getting angry... There's, there's got to be a reason. We know there's got to be a reason for him to be angry. But if he would only explain to her why, it's another of, the, of these things that we we have already talked about. Like, if only two people could just communicate and tell each other things instead of him having to get angry and get into this fit and making her cry for no reason. Like, just fucking tell her, tell her the whole story. There's nobody around. Yeah. In normal conversation, Max is so muted and awkward, but then when he has these little uh, bouts of temper, he just goes from zero to 60 so quick. Yes. It's immediate where he, and he'll like, he'll clutch at his head like it's giving him a headache and he'll just Im immediately just start twitching like he, he just he can't control himself. And, and it's disturbing, yeah. honestly. He's like, he's two-faced, honestly. Yeah, it's it's a, a very much like a, a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of thing where like, oh, yeah. the monster's coming out and I can't control it. And uh, I told you not to do this and you deliberately disobeyed me. And he starts, yeah, talking really quick and... and uh, just barking at people and it yeah it... I, I, like i understand why they did it this way and because it it builds up also anticipation it builds up tension and all that it just it's uncomfortable to watch it, yeah it definitely makes it very uncomfortable she cries uh lucy cries and hugs him and apologizes for upsetting and uh, he apologizes for upsetting her they should go and have some tea 
and forget the whole thing he says as they walk back and this is another as they're walking back they're all they're doing a fake background again Mm -hmm. where this this movie has the most fake backgrounds out of all the ones we've watched and this one was very obvious because they were walking straight with almost no movement to their bodies but you can see that the background is kind of like jumping up and down bobbing yeah Yeah. i don't know that we've ever had a fake background just for walking before no not that i remember at least yeah we've had it in in vehicles but never for just a an on-foot sequence yeah but just the when he says oh let's forget the whole thing happened that's another trope that i I don't i don't really like it's like oh i just you know i just got angry at you for no reason let's just forget that it happened no yep do over no Uh, you're going to have to explain yourself before we can forget she agrees to forget the whole thing and go have some tea and as they walk back to mandalay he hands her a handkerchief to dry her tears a handkerchief that is embroidered with the initial R. Come on, Max. Sometime later, Lucy comes across Crawley doing paperwork and offers to help, even if it's just licking stamps. As they work together, she tells him about the old man at the cottage, and he says that that must be Ben. He's harmless, and they sometimes give him odd jobs to do around the estate. She asks why the cottage is in such a state of disrepair, and after pausing for a moment, Crawley replies that if Max wanted anything to be done about it, he would have told them. Are all the things inside Rebecca's? asks Lucy. Yes, they are. What did she use the cottage for? It was where she moored her boat. The boat she was sailing when she drowned? Yes, it capsized and sank. She was washed overboard. Wasn't she afraid to go out alone? She wasn't afraid of anything, Crowley replies. Where did they find her? Lucy wants to know. Forty miles up channel, about two months afterwards. Maxim had to identify her. It was horrible for him. Lucy apologizes for all the questions. It's just that she feels so out of place and knows everyone is comparing her to Rebecca. Crowley tells her she mustn't think that. He's very glad Maxim married her. It's going to make all the difference in his life. She thanks him and promises not to bring it up again, but has one last question before they end the conversation. What was Rebecca really like? Crawley sits down and considers for a moment, and then says, I suppose she was the most beautiful creature I ever saw. And I did not pick up on this in our initial watch, but there, there's this scene and then uh, some comments later on that imply that Crawley was trying, had a romantic interest in Rebecca. Oh, in the in the remake, it's implied that he was one of her lovers too. Uh, much more explicit. Yeah. yeah. In this one, it's very subtly hinted at with just this line. And then later, Favelle says like, yeah. he was a competition with Favelle for Rebecca's affection. Yeah. I did not pick up on that at all the first time we were watching. Shot of a magazine with a drawing of a woman in black satin and pearls, which fades into Lucy wearing the same outfit as she joins Max in the study where he's fiddling with a projector. The exact outfit he... He told her not to wear. ...made her promise not to wear. Out of all the things, you had one job, Lucy. God damn it. Yeah. Don't wear this one specific material and this one specific type of jewelry, and then she goes and does it. Good grief. Well, at least she's not 36. Yep. 
he's not thrilled about the outfit because it's the exact thing he made her promise not to wear, but he doesn't lose his temper and they move past it with minimal fuss. I was expecting more of a blow up from him, but he just, he just goes, Oh really? Uh, sure. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. They begin to watch movies from their honeymoon, making various agreeable noises. It's just like 30 seconds with them just going, Oh, oh remember that? Oh, this was so fun. Oh, ha 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 ha. And then Fritz comes in and asks for a, a word with Max. And so he turns off their projector. Yeah. There's been some unpleasantness between Danvers and another servant. Uh, Danvers has accused them of stealing a China Cupid from the morning room. Oh dear, that's one of our treasures, isn't it? Says Max. He's sure it wasn't stolen, but they'll have to get to the bottom of it. Fritz leaves and Lucy confesses that she's the one who broke the Cupid but forgot to tell Max. Max then does lose his temper and asks why she didn't say anything when Fritz was there. She'll have to tell him and Danvers. She pleads for him, for Max to tell them for her, and he tells her not to be a little idiot. She's acting like she's afraid of him. Fritz and Danvers then enter, and Lucy comes clean. Danvers asks if the Cupid can be repaired, and when she's told it can't, she starts to suggest that if something like this happens again, uh, that maybe Lucy should, and Max interrupts, Yes, yes, thank you, Danvers, that will be all. Find the thing and see if it can be repaired, and above all, tell the accused servant to dry their tears, says Max. He's very, I don't even know how to describe him, just very stiff upper lip and very just business-like about everything. Like, when he first hears about it, he's like, oh dear, that does sound like some unpleasantness, doesn't it? Well, well, let's have it out then. He's just very, very matter-of-fact and business-like and awkward. The servants leave, and the two begin watching honeymoon videos again. Lucy apologizes again as the film rolls and says Danvers must be furious. Hang, Mrs. Danvers, says Max. Why are you so afraid of her? You act more like an upstairs maid than the lady of the house. Lucy says she knows she does. She tries her best every day, but she feels so uncomfortable being judged by everyone like a prized cow. That also felt, you know, uncomfortable. Like, he, she knows that's how she's acting she knows she's not up to the so-called like standards i guess of the lady of the house and he's making a point here of making you know making her notice that she's not up for the job it's i don't know it's awkward you are not acting your station yeah why are you why are you afraid of these people where they're betters yeah it just He's almost telling her that she's not good enough for uh, to be to play the part of his wife. Yeah, she's not acting the role properly. Yeah, Isn't clearly the the message being given here. She says she's tired of being judged like a prized cow, and Max replies that it comes with the territory. All anyone cares about around here is what happens in Mandalay. I suppose that's why you married me. She replies because I'm dull and inexperienced, and there could never be any gossip about me. Gossip. Max echoes sharply. What do you mean? He glares at her while she stutters an apology, telling him she was just looking for something to say and didn't mean anything by it. And we get this very severe shot of his face where the the room is in shadow because they're watching the projector. They have yeah. all the lights off and he steps in front of the projector when she says gossip and it casts half of his face in his very severe shadows and he's got a very stern grimace on his face. So it's a very 
visually striking scene. Yeah, and she's very apologetic. Yeah, he looks very intense yeah. immediately as soon as she says it. And he's just, gossip, what do you mean? And then just the, the severe shot of his face glaring at her with the shadows on it. Very well done uh, scene visually. Yeah. She says she doesn't mean anything by it. She was just looking for words to say. He turns the projector off and the lights back on and tells her it wasn't an attractive thing to say. Now, was it? He just, he understates everything. That's how it is. Like the, the, the conflict, the, the butler and w- was very clearly agitated mm-hmm. when he was bringing it up to him. And it just, as soon as it enters into Max's, uh, realm of influence it just becomes this very muted matter of fact like oh that is quite troublesome isn't it oh well well we'll have to to, to sort this business out and there's just he doesn't actually feel anything that's presented to him he just mm-hmm. he just he says the appropriate things you're supposed to say in every situation he's in but you can tell he doesn't actually f- genuinely feel them yeah he thinks he did a very selfish thing by marrying her she doesn't have much fun here does she she should have married a boy, someone her own age. He's very difficult to live with, isn't he? She assures him he isn't, and that their marriage is a success, isn't it? They're happy, very happy, aren't they? Max is silent and then turns away. Lucy tells him that if he isn't happy, it would be much better if he didn't pretend. I'll go away. Why don't you answer me? The fact that she had to ask, like... Our marriage is a success, isn't it? We're happy, aren't we? It yeah. just it was one of those things where if you have to ask, you, yeah, then it's I don't know. There was definitely an edge of desperation to her questioning. It's all good, isn't it? Right, right. Yeah, she wanted confirmation. She meaning she doesn't know that they're happy. She does, clearly, if she asked her to ask, then the answer is not clear. I could see a version of the scene where she's like dangling off his arm and uh, digging her fingers in deeper with every you know every question he asks. Yeah. Oh, why don't you answer me? She says. How can I answer you when I don't know the answer myself? Max replies. If you say we're happy, let's leave it at that. Happiness is something I know nothing about. That, oh, that felt so heavy. Like, I I felt bad for both of them. Bad for him that he doesn't know anything about happiness. Bad for her that she doesn't know if they're happy. She doesn't know what the status of their marriage is. And that she can't find her place in the house. It just felt bad all around. Like it was depressing in a very realistic way. Like, yeah. Oh, this this relationship has exited its honeymoon phase, and now the reality of it is not as good as they thought it was going to be. It's awful when if you're in a marriage and you don't know if it's going well or not. Like it, and the person who should be able to reassure you here like cannot give you a definite answer so everything is just up in the air it... yeah it feels like they're adrift yeah the lights go off the projector back on and the camera slowly zooms into the film being played on the wall it's uh, the two of them max and lucy sitting by the side of their car holding each other smiling and kissing while gentle music plays the cold reality as they sit watching uh, warm memories from the past. Yeah, it's almost like this, the only sort of happy version of them is 
on film here and it's in the past and it's not in their actual real present life yep so it's a it's a memory that's been bottled up you know, like she wanted at the at the beginning it's it's inscribed on film here but it's not it, is it, it cannot be relived it, in this moment it's a literal projection of what their relationship is mm -hmm. so it's the projection that they want people to see of their relationship and they're they're looking at the own the their projection of their own relationship yeah this is a very visually intelligent movie absolutely Fade into a note from Max, saying he's gone to London to take care of some business. He'll be back by evening and is sure the brief holiday from him will be welcome. We then see Lucy sitting listlessly on a small couch next to a, a large glass display case full of china figures. This, more than any other room in this castle, felt like an old person room. I have definitely seen those kind of giant glass display cases in old people's houses. Yeah. Do they do that in France where uh, people get to a certain age and they just start collecting like ceramic figures? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a it, they're called uh, precious memories here in America. where They're usually little ceramic figurines of like children playing with dogs and, uh, uh, you know, riding a tricycle and, you know, all the little saccoin moments of life that uh, old ladies get weepy eyed about. They're everywhere in my grandmother's house. Yeah. I mean, you've seen even in my parents' uh, apartment, like they have some of the, some of those uh, things with like a, a glass window and they put like little trinkets and stuff inside. I think in much the same way that uh, if you own a record player, at some point, a dark side of the moon just appears in your house. Yeah. Once you reach a certain age, these kind of little ceramic figures just start sprouting like mushrooms everywhere. <laughs> Regardless of if you act are actively buying them or not, they just uh, insert themselves into your life. She moves over to the window and sees movement in a window directly across from hers. A window for a room in the West Wing, which is supposed to be deserted. It had gone unused since Rebecca died. She heads out to investigate, but before she gets very far, she overhears voices whispering conspiratorially and stops to eavesdrop. It's Danvers and an unknown man, and Danvers is telling the man to exit out the back so he's not seen. He leaves, but then appears at a window behind Lucy, startling her. He teases her about eavesdropping, and Danvers walks in as well and introduces him as Mr. Favell. He steps in through the window and shakes Lucy's hand. Lucy invites him to stay for tea, and he says he's inclined to accept, but Danvers scowls at him and he remarks that it might be best uh, not to lead the young bride astray. Mm. He takes his leave, but not before requesting that Lucy not mention his visit to Max, which makes Danvers scowl again. There's a lot more to his visit in the remake. Like, they, he takes her horseback riding... He uh, teaches her how to go horseback riding. Wow. And then some of the servants report that back to Maxim when he gets back and he just gets mad. Mad because he's like, oh, he's going to seduce you too. He's like, oh, okay. Yep. Here is just this very quick window scene. He exits through the window again and says there was something Danvers left out. Uh, when she introduced him. He's Rebecca's favorite cousin. Lucy turns to look at Danvers, only to find her vanished. And 
he's probably the smarmiest character. Smarmy? Smarmiest character, like Snake in the Grass. You can mm. tell he's he's very disingenuous and very... He has the the moaning, like the upper crust moaning of people do like, Oh, my name is Favel. Nice to meet you. He, <laughs> he has that... He does that. He That's the way he talks. It's, yeah. It's comical, but it is that overblown. And his hair is slicked back, and he's like a car salesman. Yeah, he's a... He's up to no good. You can tell from the way he talks and the way he looks that he's he's slimy. There's something yeah. slimy about him, though you don't know specifically what. The actor who plays him in the remake is very... He's a lot more like flirtatious and very charismatic. Like He's very confident and just... He's that way, yeah. too, just like stepping in the window. Yeah. And just shaking her hand and... Uh, him wanting to stay and cause more problems. He's a troublemaker. Absolutely. But, you know. We don't know how much yet. Yeah, Danvers shooing him away with a scowl. Lucy continues towards the West Wing, slowly approaching the large white door leading to Rebecca's room and entering. Heavy curtains block all light from the windows, leaving the room shrouded in darkness. And after Lucy pulls one back to let in light, Mrs. Danvers steps through a sheer curtain that partitions one half of the room from the other. Lucy tells her that she saw an open window and came in to close it, and Danvers calls her on the lie immediately, saying she knows that it isn't true because she closed the window herself. You just wanted to see the room, didn't you, madame? Why didn't you ask? I've been ready to show it to you since you arrived. And she pulls back a giant set of curtains to fill the room with light. It's like an entire wall just made out of curtains, yeah. so the entire wall is just a window. She opens it and just light just floods this room and this room it looks completely different from any other room that we've seen so far in the house yeah it's open and airy and just flooded with light and everything is meticulously maintained it feels like a shrine yeah it feels like a holy place but it also feels like it has a um i don't know if it's meant to feel that way but from the the way it looks it, it looks like it has a much higher ceiling than other rooms yep. in the house it has those huge ass windows it yeah it looks like a completely different environment yeah with the larger windows and high ceiling it's almost like a cathedral yeah a cathedral room which uh lends to the it feeling like a holy place and a shrine right it's it's very clear from Mrs. Danner's reaction and how uh, trepidatious Lucy is about entering that this is, oh, she's treading on sacred ground here. Yeah. Like this, it's not a place that should be disturbed and not a place she should enter. Like almost like she's not allowed to be there. A restricted area. Danvers says that everything has been left just the way it was the night Rebecca died and begins giving Lucy a tour. Their first stop is the closet, still filled with Rebecca's clothes. Danvers takes out a fur coat and slowly rubs a sleeve against her cheek, then slowly rubs it against Lucy's cheek. She is just, she's just being creepy. She's just being openly creepy in the scene and, and making no bones about it. Yeah, just she's like, like, feel this. Feel how soft it is and rubs it against her cheek. Next, Lucy is shown Rebecca's underwear made especially uh, by the nuns of St. Clair. And they, they're stored in these cool, like, these drawers that they open like a 
a hinged door. Mm-hmm. So you like you open the door and it's like the whole drawer just comes along with the yeah. door as it opens. It's neat. They move from there to the dressing table where Danvers notices that one of the brushes is slightly out of place and fixes it. It's like a centimeter out of place. She's like, oh, you moved one of the brushes, I see. And she just nudges it back into place real quick. She motions Lucy to sit down at the table, and she pantomimes brushing Lucy's hair while she monologues about how she would do it every night for Rebecca before she went to bed. 20 minutes each time. In the remake, it's even creepier because Mrs. Danvers says that Mr. The Winter would brush Rebecca's hair, and she's asking her, like, does he brush your hair? Ugh. The bed is then the final stop where Danvers shows Lucy a pillowcase she embroidered herself that has a large R right in the center and the nightgown that is kept inside. Have you ever seen anything so delicate, says Mrs. Danvers. Look, you can see my hand right through it. Yeah, it's one of those like black lace negligee. Yeah, sheer nightgown. Yeah. Look Look at Rebecca's sexy underwear. It's my favorite. So, yeah, I can see why people thought they had a relationship with her showing off her underwear and negligee like this. And then the fact that she she's brushing, she's feeling the, uh, her coat on her face and all that. Like, yeah, that's yeah, there's creepy. a very, very sensual element to this whole tour that yeah. she gives. Lucy wanders in a daze towards the exit. She's getting progressively visibly uncomfortable through this whole thing and danvers just does not care danvers is intentionally making her uncomfortable Uh, but before she can make her escape danvers catches up to her and says you wouldn't think she'd been gone so long would you sometimes when i walk the corridor i can almost hear her right behind me a quick light step i can almost hear it now do you think the dead can come back to watch the living Sometimes I almost think she comes back to Mandalay to watch you and Mr. De Winter together. Why don't you stay here a while and rest and listen to the sea? Danvers turns back to the window and Lucy quickly opens the door and slips out. She pieces out as soon as uh, Danvers turns her back. Danvers <laughs> suggests she rests and Lucy says, nuh Peace out, Girl Scout. She's much more cruel in the remake. She's like, do you think she approves of you and her, and her husband? Yeah, digging the knife in deeper. Yeah. It's a more subtle digging in here. But yeah, it's it's so oppressive. Like just the house itself, it's so massive. And there's a lot of shots of Lucy walking through these enormous rooms, but there's no one else in them. So yeah. it's just her and it's another good visual metaphor of just how dwarfed she is by Mm -hmm. the situation she finds herself in. Cause they're usually wide shots too, where it's just her uh, being, you know, this small figure in this, these enormous cathedral like spaces and just alone and just drifting slowly through them. It's visually oppressive too. Yes. Just the weight of it just, it's suffocating. Yeah. Like the whole place, it has a character of its own and it's it's a very malicious presence. Yeah, the, the, the house is definitely a character in this movie. Yeah, it feels like Rebecca is the house. Or at least if she isn't Mandalay, she's haunting it and her presence is just everywhere and it's just, 
it's grinding Lucy down like every second she's there. Yeah, the the house would be like a, a visual representation of how oppressive the the memory of Rebecca and Rebecca is. Yeah, this weight that is just yeah. pressing down on on Lucy every day. In the morning room, Lucy sits at the desk laid out with Rebecca's things, shaking and crying. She picks up the house phone and requests Mrs. Danvers be sent up at once. She takes all the papers out of the desk, and when Danvers enters, she tells her she wants them all disposed of. But those are Mrs. De Winter's things, says Danvers. I am Mrs. De Winter's, replies Lucy. It was good to see her. This is the first time she ever stands up to anyone in the house. So it was good for her to finally assert herself, say, you know, stop talking about the dead lady. I'm the alive lady. (laughs) I'm the wife, damn it, me. Max then returns home and Lucy jumps into his arms and asks if they can throw a costume ball like the old days. You'll have to play host to hundreds of people, says Max, and young people will come up from London and turn the place into a nightclub. Lucy says she can handle it, so Max agrees. He's not dressing up, though. That shit is lame. <laughs> yeah. He says it's his privilege as the uh, the master of the house it, is that he doesn't have to dress up. And the remake here, when Max come when Maxim comes back, one of the servants lets him know that Mister Favell had come to the house, mm. and so that's when Maxim gets angry at his wife, and he's like, "Why did you interact with him? Why did they said you went horseback riding with him, and he was with you on the horse, and he's seducing you, and blah blah." Trying to touch his wiener, you're only supposed to touch my wiener. <laughs> Except when Favela arrives at the house... This is how low-born you, you are. Don't even know which winners to touch. <laughs> when Favela arrives at the house, he makes it clear that it was Mrs. Danvers who invited him. And so she tries to tell him that he she knows Danvers invited him. And he doesn't believe her, and so at the end of that of the that scene in the remake, to assert that she's Mrs. De Winter now, she goes up into Mrs. Danvers' room and she fires. She tries to fire Ooh. her. She tells her to pack her bags, and she'll uh, she's giving her her notice, and she has to leave. And that's when we get the backstory of Mrs. Danvers about how she took care of Rebecca as a, as a child, and um, she lays out her sob story, and that's what lets exactly her stay. she she you know starts crying, and she tells the new Mrs. De Winter that she uh, was hoping that they could be friends and that she's never felt that from her and that's why she hasn't been very welcoming and so yeah we get none of that yeah she lets her stay and um now Mrs. Danvers pretends to be her friend and she's friendly with her and she helps us she helps her like pick uh menus and decorations and she helps her plan for the costume ball and all that no danvers is ice cold to lucy this entire movie oh yeah she's she's being sneaky there's a purpose to to her being uh, you know being warmer and being nice in the in the remake in in this one it is always very cold formality and for you can tell that there's like hostility bubbling underneath the surface but until that uh creep ass tour it was contained yeah Sometime later, Lucy sketches ideas for her costume in her bedroom. She's got, like, a Joan of Arc, like, suit of armor and stuff she's sketching. 
and Mrs. Danvers enters and suggests that she take inspiration from the family portraits that hang at the top of the stairs. They go to look at the portraits together, and Danvers points out uh, one in particular and says the dress the woman is wearing in the portrait uh, looks like it was made for Lucy and could easily be replicated. It's just a big, white, like, frilly dress. Uh, Lucy agrees and thanks Danvers. On the night of the party, Max greets Beatrice and her husband as they arrive and mentions that Lucy has kept her costume a surprise. Uh, Beatrice is dressed up like some sort of Viking. She's got like blonde pigtails and some chainmail on. Yeah. And her husband is dressed up as a strong man. Yeah. He's got, it's like a full bodysuit thing, but parts of it are made to look skin tone, so it looks like he's wearing a, a leopard skin like leotard kind of thing. Yeah, it was uh, reminiscent of the strong man in uh, Great, the Great Ziegfeld. Yeah, when he wore the... Because he's got the bells, the, the the that bar with the bells the on it. The fake dumbbells, and yeah. a servant is carrying it, and he tries to hand it to him, and it drops to the floor and bounces a bit, so yeah. we know it's just balloons, and he, like, he scowls at the servant. Now they'll know I'm not really strong. Beatrice goes to help Lucy with her costume, but is sent away at the door. Lucy wants no one to see it. The final adjustments are made with the help of a maid. I think that's the, the second scene. Yeah, Clarice. Uh, and Lucy slowly walks downstairs to Max, passing the portrait she's copying on the way. She approaches Max while his back is turned, and when he turns around, he looks like he's seen a ghost. What the devil do you think you're doing? He gasps, and Beatrice whispers, Rebecca. Max tells Lucy to go change into something else, anything else. Lucy stares at him in shock, and he yells, What are you standing there for? Didn't you hear what I just said? And he does the thing where he grabs his head again, and oh, he can't take it. Yeah. He's just so mad. And Lucy, Lucy rushes back up the stairs in tears. She pauses as she reaches the top, though, because she notices Mrs. Danvers entering the big white doors into Rebecca's room. She charges in after her and comes to a halt in the center of the room, glaring at Danvers, who says... I watched you go down, just like I watched her go down last year. Even in the same dress, you couldn't compare. You knew. You knew and you made me wear it. Why do you hate me? asked Lucy. You tried to replace her, replies Danvers. I used to listen to him, walking up and down, up and down, night after night, thinking of her, suffering because he lost her. You thought you could be Mrs. De Winters, live in her house, Walk in her steps, take the things that were hers, but she's too strong for you. No one ever got the better of her. She lost in the end, but not to a man or a woman. She lost to the sea. In the remake, the, so she had become uh, super nice to Mrs. De Winter, and it's the maid, Clarice, who suggests the uh, to, uh, to take inspiration from the paintings. And so when she sees that happen, she is like, I'm sorry, I had no idea. It was Mrs. Danvers who told me to uh, to do it. And that's when the... Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's that was a bit of a, a plot hole where if Rebecca wore this last year, all of the servants should have known about it. Yeah. So that servant who was helping Lucy get prepared should have known that this was going to be a huge faux pas and yeah. warned her about it. And also... The fact that Danvers is not fired after this happens is a massive plot hole, especially given what happens next in the scene. Yes. 
because uh, Lucy collapses on the bed sobbing, and after a few moments, Danvers moves to a window and opens it. You're overwrought, madam. I've opened a window. The air will do you good. And Lucy then gets up and moves over to the window, and Danvers moves closer next to her to whisper in her ear. Why don't you leave, Mandalay? He doesn't need you. He doesn't love you. He wants to be alone again with her. You have nothing to stay for. You have nothing to live for, really. Look down there. And the camera points to the ground as they're looking out the window. It would be easy, wouldn't it? Go on. Go on. Don't be afraid. <laughs> the spell is broken by an explosion in the sky and people rushing outside. Shipwreck, someone yells, and Lucy rushes away, calling for Max, leaving Danvers by the window. On the beach, the partygoers move through a thick fog, and Lucy is among them, looking for Max. She comes across the owl-eyed man who rises up out of the fog, saying, She won't come back, right? The other one. Lucy has no answer and continues on. She runs into Crawley next, who tells her the last time he saw Max was half an hour ago, but doesn't know where he is now. Lucy asks him if something is wrong, and he tells her that the diver who went down to inspect the hull of the crashed ship found another ship on the bottom. It was Rebecca's. <gasps> this was... Man, this took a turn. <laughs> Very quickly. With Danvers uh, actively trying to push her to commit suicide. Like, yeah. She just lays her cards all out on the table at this point. She's, she's just... like, go on. Go crack your head on the pavement. Yep, there's the ground. Get to it. And Lucy makes no response and is just starting to cry. And it almost seems like she's starting to consider it before the explosion happens yeah, and yeah. knocks her out of the fog. Man, good scene. It's a good one, yeah. Yeah, how this is the first moment where you get a little bit of the turn because this whole time up until now there's just this looming dread like you know something is going to happen and, yeah and you finally get the the heel turn from mrs danvers and the the actual motivation and how she feels and what she wants yeah and the the lengths she is willing to go to get it yeah because before that it almost looks like the new Mrs. Danver, or Mrs. Uh, Winter is not crazy, but uh, the only interactions where Mrs. Danvers is a little bit creepy is really with her, not with other people around. So it almost, I don't know, it, it, it almost looks like it's in Mrs. De Winter's head. And you can get... Even from the, the way, like, Max reacts, like, why are you so afraid of her that she's blowing things out of proportion? Yeah, and... that nobody else has the, the same reaction to Mrs. Danvers. Yep. And then the scene of them at the beach, that was an incredibly well-shot scene. With You can just feel the the excitement in the air that happens when... when you know, a crisis in real life happens and everyone's a little confused and excited and yeah. all just the, the shapes moving through the fog by the sea and her searching for Max and then Ben looming up out of the fog. And he's... A lot of times when they try and have a, a creepy character in movies, it just comes off as very 
trying too hard to me, mm-hmm. but I think they did a really good job with Ben and his very plaintive, like, she's not coming back, right? The other one. <laughs> yeah. Like, Rebecca is still very much a presence that could come back. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's a very believable, uh, we're safe from the ghost, right? Which, her presence was so much and uh, was uh, felt so heavily throughout the house that I almost expected that the twist would be that she was actually alive. Yeah, I was expecting that to be the role that the dog played is that the dog was going to lead Lucy to a room that contained Rebecca's corpse or something. Yeah. Something along those lines. That's not what happens. Like a a Norman Bates situation. Yeah. (laughs) But they do a really good job making things uneasy. And I think even saying creepy is too strong word. Just this like crawling like tingling at the back of your neck like you know something is wrong yeah but you can't you can't really pinpoint yeah you can't point to any thing specifically it's just this it's just this this really faint sour note to everything like there's some discordant something and it just it makes your your skin prickle very impressive way Lucy continues on looking for Max and comes upon the neglected cottage. She enters and finds Max sitting against the far wall. And it's a good shot where, just in the same way that Lucy is dwarfed when she's in Mandalay, he is just a very small piece of the wall and every, is dwarfed by all the furniture and things around him. Yeah, it almost looks like everything, like the furniture is about to like just climb onto him and absorb him. Yeah, he, he looks like he's part of it. Like, he, he's just part of the uh, the scenery yeah. in there. He calmly greets her, and she approaches and asks if he's still upset about the costume. He says he isn't, and had forgotten about it, in fact. Lucy asks if they can start over again. She won't ask him to love her, but she can be his friend, his companion. Max rises from his seat and tells her it's too late now. The thing has happened. The thing he's dreaded day after day... Night after night, Rebecca has won. What do you mean? The Dietver discovered a second ship, Rebecca's ship, he tells her. He discovered something else as well. On the floor of the cabin, a body. (laughs) She wasn't alone then, says Lucy. There was no one with her, replies Max. It's Rebecca's body lying on the ocean floor. The body in the family crypt, the body he identified, was an unknown woman. He said it was Rebecca, but he knew it was a lie. He knew all along where Rebecca's body was. How did you know, Max? whispers Lucy. Because, he replies, slowly raising his eyes to look at her, I'm the one who put it there. Oh, Jesus. Oh, shit. Yep, this is where we finally get the twist took long enough yeah we did take this is past the halfway mark of this movie. oh yeah i think we only have about uh 25 minutes left after yeah. this yeah it comes pretty late in the game would you look into my eyes and tell me that you love me now lucy asks why he never told her this before and he says he almost did a few times 
but never felt that they were close enough. How could we be close, says Lucy, when you still love her? Every time you touched me, I knew you were comparing me to her. Every time you spoke to me, or looked at me, or walked with me in the garden, I knew you were thinking, this I did with Rebecca, and this, and this. You thought I loved Rebecca? exclaims Max. You thought that? I hated her! <laughs> and we get uh, a dramatic a musical sting to accompany that re revelation. He goes, I hated her! And you get, dumb. <laughs> The we haven't mentioned it so far, but the music takes a very active role. Yeah. In this film, more so than the others we've watched, I think there's a lot of very discordant like uh, violin stringing to create tension as she's walking through the halls, and not the the usual like, -na 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 -na, you know, just murmuring to to increase the tension. And, right. And lots of you compared it to like Disney music a lot of times. Yes, the, I don't. I don't know that I would be able to describe it properly, but it gave me, yeah, it gave me an impression of like Disney music, the kind of music that I remembered from Sleeping Beauty and uh, what's the other one? Cinderella. Cinderella. And I was thinking about another one, the ones with the dwarves. Oh, Snow White. Snow White. <laughs> Yeah, Snow White. Like, I had the name in in French in my head, but not in English. Yeah, when they're in their honeymoon period and they're like going around on those drives when she was pretending to take tennis lessons, and even when they go for a walk after they yeah. first meet Beatrice, it's a very jaunty, like upbeat. You know, dun, 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 dun. yeah, it has the. I, I don't know how to explain it, but it has the the music has the same quality as the as music that you would hear in yeah in Sleeping Beauty and uh, Snow White. Jaunty and happy, and then but when they're inside Mandalay, it's the the tense violin strings and, yeah. and here you get the the big sting when with the reveal that he hated rebecca which was uh, appropriate for a single viewing but i watched uh his speech several times when writing it up for the synopsis and it did get slightly comical after like the fourth time of <laughs> i hate her Duh! i hated her and this well let's finish out the scene before we we talk about it okay he recounts how he was enchanted with her at first and told he was the luckiest man in the world by everyone around him. But four days into their marriage, on the very cliff Lucy met him on in Monte Carlo, Rebecca stood there laughing with her black hair blowing in the wind and told him everything about her. Terrible things he will never repeat to another living soul. And I wish we did get, do you, do they get, give any indication in the remake of what she actually did that was so terrible? Because we never get anything more concrete than this. In the remake, he tells her that she told him that she wanted to have a, a life that was separate from him too. That she wanted to be able to have her own apartment in London and she was going to have as many lovers as as she wanted to. And that essentially like she was going to play the part of his wife when there were people around, but otherwise like he would be alone and essentially she was going to take advantage of his money. Okay. Well, that's not great, but it's not as bad as he's making it seem here. Like, no, I was, I was imagining like she's got some bodies buried somewhere. Yeah, she's a serial killer. She's the like the kind of person who like 
picked the leg off of insects as a child just to watch them suffer like that kind of thing but we never get any details yeah no and and the remake is just she wants to be able to do whatever she wants she wants to be able to have access to uh, as much money as she wants and she's going to keep as many lovers as she fancies yeah the implication here that was that she's really fucked up person <laughs> way more than just wanting to have a, a series of lovers there was no tenderness in her no love he wanted to kill her you thought me mad when you first saw me didn't you he asks. well perhaps i am it wouldn't do for sanity living with the devil she made a bargain with him to play the part of a devoted wife and make mandalay the most famous estate in the country everyone will visit and think they're the luckiest happiest people what a grand joke it will be what a triumph he accepted her deal because he was young and very conscious of the family honor at first she played the game brilliantly but after a while she began to grow careless staying away for days at a time and there was a cousin of hers a man named favel <laughs> He used to visit her here in this cottage, and Max found out about it and warned her that if he came again, Max would shoot them both. One night, when she came quietly back from London, he thought Favelle was with her. So he came down to the cottage to confront both of them, but she was alone. She was lying on the couch, a large tray of cigarettes beside her. She looked ill. She got up and walked towards him and told him that if she had a child, everyone would think it's his, and that she would be the perfect mother, just like she'd been the perfect wife. It would be a thrill to see her son grow bigger every day and know that he would eventually inherit Mandalay. She was face to face with him then, holding a cigarette and smiling. Well, Max, what are you going to do about it? Aren't you going to kill me? Max says he struck her, and she looked triumphant. She began to walk towards him, but stumbled and fell, hitting her head on a heavy piece of ship's tackle. After what seemed like ages, Max looked down and saw she was dead, with a smile still plastered on her face. He carried her out to the boat, and once they were a safe distance from shore, he took a spike and drove it again and again through the planking of the hull. He opened up the sea cocks, and the water came in fast. He jumped into the lifeboat and pulled away and watched the boat keel over and sink. So that's the last fun fact I had earlier is that Zelsnake insisted that the movie needed to be faith a faithful adaptation of the novel. However, they had to change a detail to comply with Hollywood production code, which apparently dictated that the murder of a spouse needed to be punished somehow and in the novel maxim doesn't just hit her he actually shoots rebecca Ooh, shit uh but in the movie he yeah he you know he hits her and then pokes she's... holes in the boat and she drowns and she well she's already dead at that point but yep. she sinks to the sea but yeah in the novel he actually kills her he's more culpable yeah here he just smacks her and then she falls and, and bonks her head and dies yes conveniently yeah this whole sequence though i thought was really good it was it was it was really good at uh, you know giving 
just enough explanation that you're satisfied, but also still keeping the tension with, you know, he doesn't tell her exactly what, uh, he doesn't want to tell her what Rebecca told him that was so terrible. So it does a good job at giving you just enough so that you can, you can go on, okay, this is a good explanation, but also keeps the tension up. And a good twist. Yeah. The fact that he hated her. Yeah, because at that point, when you when you hear him say, I hated her, like, but everybody acts like she's still alive, like she's being missed. All her stuff, all the uh, all that stuff of hers that's monogrammed with her initials, it's still around the house. Everybody acts like she was the most beautiful, kindest person, that she was a wonderful woman and all that. And it's like... How does everybody have that distorted view of her if you hated her? She played the game brilliantly. Yeah. Yeah. And up until that point, you're operating under the same assumption that Lucy was. Yes. That he was still... He was... The reason that he was so awkward the whole time was because he was devastated over the loss. Yeah, that he was still grieving for her. Yeah. And then it turns out the reason he's so awkward and uptight about everything is that he has this uh corpse disposal cover-up hanging over him and he's just his nerves are just raw because he's so stressed out about being found out the whole time and also i would imagine you know some trauma about having married a woman who seems he said he was enchanted with her so she must have seemed sweet and loving and or lovable enough that he married her so what if yeah, f- this new woman is the same what if she just seems sweet and then she turns out to be a monster four days into the marriage he said they're past the four day mark at this point they're safe yeah yeah it's it's a good twist it's really well done you get the that creeping sense of dread like oh this is this is going to be something ugly yeah. this is the reveal i felt bad for maxim's character you know because it brought whenever he when he uh, explains all of that about rebecca it took me back to the scene where he tells her he doesn't know what happiness is yep. and it's just yeah it feels like he's it explains a lot of his behavior because he they could be happy like uh, him and his new wife uh, could be happy but it's happiness is probably something that he can't trust yeah and there's a, an edge of danger to it too because when he starts uh, talking about how things when you don't know that it was an accident so you have this uh tension of oh is uh, lucy gonna be the next one he kills in this cottage yeah like here's the spot where i killed my first wife and my second bonk <laughs> <laughs> But that's not how it goes. He he states in the scene that how he genuinely loves Lucy. Yeah. And that's why he was selfish of him to bring her into the marriage because he's bringing her into this mess of a cover-up he has yeah. to maintain. Lucy grabs Max at that point and asks if anyone else knows about this. No, just them, says Max. Lucy says they need a cover story. She immediately hops on board. She did not waffle whatsoever. She's all in immediately, which I appreciated. He should say it's a body he never, he's never seen before. Uh, Max says that won't work because they'll be able to identify her by the jewelry, the corpse in the boat. Yeah. He left her rings and bracelets on. Which, though, it's been underwater for a year. Like, I would have expected this thing to be picked clean at this point, but I ain't no ocean doctor. 
well jewelry that especially if she still has her wedding ring if it's engraved that's yeah but all the the meat would be gone so it could just like float away that's true yeah like i said ain't no ocean doctor you must claim you made a mistake with the other body then says lucy you were sick with grief and thought it was her Max embraces Lucy and tells her that now she understands why it was selfish of him to marry her, like I said. He loves her, but he always knew Rebecca would win in the end. Lucy assures him she hasn't, but is interrupted when the phone rings. Max answers, and after a brief, brief conversation tells Lucy that the chief constable of the county, Colonel Julian, has been asked by the police to go to the mortuary. He wanted to know if it's possible Max made a mistake with the other body. And then we move to straight to the mortuary. At the mortuary, Max, Crawley, and Colonel Julian walk together. Max is told it's perfectly understandable that he made a mistake under the circumstances. But the real pity is that now he has to go through the same thing all over again. There will have to be another inquest. Same formality and red tape. Julian wishes he could be spared the ordeal, but it's impossible. The boat is being examined, and it should all be over quickly. They must get together for a game of golf once it's all settled. Hmm. Back at Mandalay, Lucy makes Max promise not to lose his temper at the inquest tomorrow, no matter what they ask, and he agrees. She also wants to come with him, so they won't be separated for even a moment. He takes her head in his hands and says it's gone forever, that young, funny, lost look in her eyes. He killed it when he told her about Rebecca. Just a few hours, and you've grown so much older. Thanks, Max. <laughs> Am I 36 yet? Am I 36 yet? Can I wear black satin and pearls? It is true, though. It, there is a change in her disposition after that scene. She yeah. she becomes much more assertive and sure of herself. Yep. So he's a, at least accurate in that description. Then they kiss in front of the huge fireplace. Next scene, the inquest is well underway, with Ben, the owl-eyed man, being questioned, and Mrs. Danvers, Favell, Crawley, and Lucy in the crowd. Everybody's there. And they're trying to question Ben, and he's just doing his usual, uh, she's not coming back, is she? She's in the sea. <laughs> like, this man is basically just like a Halloween prop who just... <laughs> who just spits out spooky lines like he needs to be you need to place him in a, like a haunted mansion ride mm. so he can deliver his lines not questioning him like and they're trying like yes but did you see her go out to the boat and he's just she was in the water yes but did you and they just keep trying and he's just not yeah. giving them anything uh they finally give up and the next person called to testify is ted who owns a shipyard that rebecca would send her boat to for reconditioning he says Rebecca was a born sailor who would never, he never knew to have an accident. And when he examined the boat, he discovered that the seacocks were open, which basically function as corks in the boat. Yeah. So they're used to drain the boat when it's, uh, when it's outside of water to get the water out. So if you open them when it is in water, all the water rushes in and the boat sinks. Uh, as terrible as it is to say, he doesn't believe the ship capsized. He believes it was scuttled because she was too much of an experience to sailor to she would know not to open them while she was at sea right what's more he found holes in the planking that were clearly made from the inside and all the while while he's giving his testimony uh 
Max is sitting up at the front table with all the other officials, and he keeps like casting glances to Lucy, and you get shots of Lucy in the crowd looking worried and uh, nervous and, and clutching her hands together. Yeah. Uh, Max is up next and is asked if he can think of any reason why there would be holes in the planking. Uh, if anyone had discussed the holes with him before, are they to believe Rebecca made those holes herself? Can he enlighten them as to why Mrs. Danvers would have wanted to end her own life? Uh, and were rela- Mrs. DeWinter. Mrs. DeWinter, yeah. Uh, and were the relation- relations between you and the late Mrs. DeWinter perfectly happy? And he cannot withstand the slightest pressure during this question. He yeah. immediately just starts to like fidget and raise his voice and lose his temper when they ask him like about, uh, would you know any reason uh, for it to take your life? And, uh, oh, well, your guess is as good as mine. And uh, well, who, who would know about these sort of things? Like just immediately on edge and just like, Jesus Christ, man. Like yeah. you're cracking under the slightest pressure. <laughs> God's sake. And before I forget again, uh, this was the first movie we watched on YouTube instead of Amazon. Mm-hmm. So the closed captioning was uh, of a lower quality than you find on Amazon. Eesh. So it never uh, caught the DeWinter's name correctly. It would uh, call it something different every single time. One time he was Mr. Dewar. One time he was Mr. Wendy. Uh, Mr. One time he was like just like mr doctor it, it was something different every single time and also when there was no dialogue being spoken it would usually just throw up the word foreign in the closed caption what i don't know but it happened in every scene where there was just music and no speaking foreign it says but then uh mr dewindy would come along to save the day <laughs> I wonder if it's because it's trying to find what to say for when music plays and it's just, oh, that's a foreign sound. I don't know. Foreign noises. Weird no noises. No words. I don't know. So he's huffing and puffing with all these questions, especially when they get to the last one about uh, were relations between you and the late Mrs. DeWinter perfectly happy and it cuts to a shot of his face and he's puffing his cheeks out and he's staring up at the ceiling and uh, they ask it again more forcefully. I repeat... Were relations between you and the late Mrs. De Winters perfectly happy? Yeah, and of course, it, I don't think it's mentioned here, but it, of course, doesn't look great that he's already remarried. Yeah. As the last question is repeated, Max loses his temper and shouts that he won't stand this any longer, and you might as well know now. But he's cut off because Lucy faints before he can finish, and they are adjoined for lunch. She's in the front row, and she just collapses onto the floor. And Yeah saves him saves his ass cuts him off before he can just spill the beans after like what uh, 45 seconds of being Mm. questioned he just immediately snaps it's comical how quickly he just loses his shit over this it just yeah so max and he's just (laughs) jesus christ how did you like the the sandwiches you had for lunch (laughs) won't stand for this so they adjourn for lunch after lucy saves the day uh, max and lucy walk to their car where lunch is waiting but uh max wants to find crawley so lucy stays in the car by herself to eat as soon as max leaves favel appears in the window he opens the door and says i say marriage to max is not exactly a bed of roses is it hmm. 
Lucy tells him he should leave before Max returns, and he tells her he's not the big bad wolf, he's just an ordinary bloke. Though he sees she's grown up a bit, a bit since he last saw her. Max enters the car at that point with a terse, What do you want, Favel? Favel replies that he came to the inquest out of concern for Max, and Max thanks him coldly and says they'd like to eat their lunch alone. Favel says lunch sounds like a jolly good idea and steps into the car, seating himself uh, facing Max and Lucy, because this is a, a fancy rich people car that has like bench seating where the seats are facing each other. Yeah. And he climbs in, and he's he's too big for this car, so they're all really uncomfortably smooshed together in this small space, and it's it's a very uncomfortable intentionally uncomfortable move on his part to assert himself and just shove himself in this space and he's just making them both so uncomfortable yeah. and the audience as well is another one another scene that was very well done very intentionally uncomfortable in a realistic and, and very well done way he starts eating and drinking without permission he just start. they have like a little uh picnic basket and he just starts digging into it and like eating chicken and like throwing the bones out the windows he just just makes himself at home yep. and just starts eating their food like he owns the place and says he wants to talk about those holes in the planking. He has a feeling that before the day is out, they might hear that rather expressive, though somewhat old fashioned term foul play. Mm. Is he boring them with this? No. He tells them that he has a note with him written by Rebecca the day she died. And it's not the kind of note a person who's going to commit suicide would write. He's also getting tired of his job as a motor car salesman and would like Max's advice on how to live comfortably without hard work. Max suggests they move to a private room in a nearby inn to discuss a business arrangement, but sticks his head back in the car as Favel walks away and tells Lucy to find Colonel Julian immediately. He's such a... He's such a good uh, slime bag. Yeah. How... He's, am I making you uncomfortable? And the the taking the food and uh, he also makes a comment about when he finishes the the first piece of chicken. He goes, "Oh, what is it you do with old bones? Uh, you bury them, right?" Okay. And he's he's just poking at them in, in such a a subtle but very effective way. Yeah. There's a lot of really good. Just enough to, you know, try to get a reaction out of them. Yes, this is a very smartly written movie. It's very, which is what Hitchcock is known for, just being able to get to very subtly create tension. He, he doesn't hit you over the head with it. It's not ham-fisted in your face. It's just the very subtle, like, oh, am I making you uncomfortable? And the, the fact that uh, Favelle himself is just too big for that space and he's crowding them. Yeah, yeah, and in that scene when they're in, in the car, you almost can't see the outside, so you very much feel the tight space. Like you, it feels like you're almost sitting in there with them. Yeah, it's a very. He's just dominating them in like very subtle but intentional ways. He like starts smoking while he's in there too, and just like blowing smoke at them. Yeah. Very intimidating and overbearing presence. Very well done. In the private room, Colonel Julian arrives with Lucy and Crawley before Max and Favelle can even start talking. They just all show up immediately. And Max tells Julian Favelle is trying to blackmail him and is withholding evidence for the trial because uh, Julian is the one. He's the chief of police, so mm -hmm. he's overseeing the whole uh, inquest. Favelle gives the note from Rebecca to Julian, and it says that she'll be in the cottage waiting for Favelle because she has something important to tell him. 
Favelle says she clearly wasn't going to kill herself, and even if she was, punching holes in her own boat is an overly elaborate and exhausting way to do so. He accuses Max of murder, and Julian asks if he has any witnesses. Favelle says he does, and leaves, returning shortly with Mrs. Danvers in tow. Favelle asks her about the secret doctor in London that Rebecca would visit, and Danvers claims ignorance, until Favelle reveals that Max is under suspicion of murder, at which point uh, Danvers looks at Max, then at Lucy, and says, Dr. Baker, 165 Goldhawk Road, Shepherd's Bush. She, she claims ignorance twice. Mm-hmm. And uh, Favelle is very familiar with her. He's like, oh, come on, Danny, don't play this game with me. Yeah. And then he finally has to convince her by saying, oh, I see what you're saying. You think you're protecting Rebecca. But uh, then then he reveals that Max is under suspicion of murder and that's enough to she looks at Max. And then what really changes her mind is that Lucy stands up and like puts her arm on Max's. Mm -hmm. And then when she sees them together, a a couple, that's when she gives the address because fuck these two. She was here for Rebecca, not them. At this point in the in the remake, Max is being taken into custody and they go back to the house. Um, Crawley and uh, the new Mrs. and the Winter go back to the house and they look through uh, old stuff from Rebecca and they find the doctor's address. And had to do some, some sleuthing to figure it out. Yes. Whereas here it's just presented. And this time she fires Danvers. Oh, shit. Yeah. So she actually gets to do it. Yeah, I don't know... We, we, we're not really told what amount of time has passed, but it's a few days at least yeah. since that party. Yeah. So why in the world, after Mrs. Danvers openly trying to get the lady of the house to commit suicide, is she still in the employee of the house? I don't know. That was such a... It makes no sense. Yeah, it makes no sense. That should have been like the first second Lucy found Max... They have the discussion, the reveal about Rebecca, but immediately after that, it should have been, hey, Mrs. Danvers tried to get me to kill myself. (laughs) We probably shouldn't employ her anymore. Yes. But here she is. And this scene, there's also a bunch of dialogue in between Max and Favelle that I didn't write down because it really serves no purpose. I I think this scene in particular went on a little too long and it was too drawn out. Yes. Uh, Favelle says that if they speak to the doctor, he will reveal that Rebecca was going to have a child, supplying the motive for the murder. Uh, Favelle's child. Favelle, Max, Crawley, and Colonel Julian head to London immediately to speak to the doctor, and Lucy returns to Mandalay. In the doctor's private study, they explain the situation to the doctor, and he says he never had a patient with the name De Winter, and can prove it by looking at in his appointment diary. He opens it to the day uh, Rebecca supposedly visited him and reads off the names. Ross, Campbell, Stedow, Panero, Danvers. Favelle jumps out of his chair and says that must be her. Julian asks the doctor to describe Danvers, and the description matches Rebecca. Would the doctor be able to provide any reason for Rebecca's suicide? Murder, you mean, says Favelle. Mm. The doctor can, in fact. Rebecca herself thought she was pregnant, but after sending her to a specialist, the truth was something else entirely. She was terminally ill with cancer. Yep. 
He told her she only had a few months left to live. But she smiled in an odd way upon hearing that and said, Oh no, doctor, not that long. As they leave the doctors, Julian tells Max that he won't be needed at the inquest anymore, that the ruling will be suicide, and he's sorry for all the trouble. Favell leaves the group and phones Mrs. Danvers, and this is where we get the, the Hitchcock cameo. Yeah. Uh, telling her about Rebecca's cancer and twisting the knife by saying that Max and his new bride can now live happily ever after in Mandalay. So in the remake, since uh, Max had been taken into custody, the his wife, his new wife, is the one who goes and finds the doctor, and she finds the documents and uh, um, that says that Rebecca had cancer and all that, and the police arrives and they find her and they're like oh what are you doing here and she's like oh she's trying to find you know she's trying to help my husband and the doctor tell, uh, tells him that yeah she had cancer of in her reproductive reproductive system and it was already way too advanced when it was found out and she was already like essentially it's they don't say it in those terms but essentially she was already stage four and there was not much they could do yeah he makes a comment about it being a so deep rooted that there was no point in surgery or anything like that. Yeah. She only had a few months left regardless of what they did. Yep. We then move to Max and Crawley driving back to Mandalay and Max saying he wishes he could get more speed out of the car. Crawley asks what's bothering him and Max replies that he can't shake the feeling that something is wrong. And during the scene, we're getting the, the tense violin strings again. Mm -hmm. So it's clearly, yeah, something is up but we don't know what. We get a quick cut to Mrs. Danvers walking through the darkened Mandalay, the, the darkened corridors of Mandalay, carrying a candle and slowly approaching a sleeping Lucy. Back to Max and Crawley, and Max stops the car and wakes Crawley, asking for the time. It's 3 a.m., which means the light Max sees over the treetops can't be the dawn. It's Mandalay, says Max, and speeds forward, as they round the last corner to reveal Mandalay in flames. The whole thing. Servants are scrambling to save as much as they can from the inferno, and Lucy breaks away from the crowd to tell Max that Mrs. Danvers went mad, said she would rather see Mandalay destroyed than see them happy there. Someone then shouts to look at the West Wing, and Danvers stands in the window, surrounded by flames, as the ceiling collapses in on her. The camera moves through the fire, and the final shot is of the embroidered pillowcase with the R on it being consumed by fire. In the remake, she Danvers also set the whole like, Mandalay on fire, except Lucy goes after her. She drives. She goes away from her, from the house. She runs back to the to the cliff, uh, you know, next to the that little house on the beach, and. Instead of dying in the fire at Mandalay, Mrs. Danvers just throws herself off the cliff and dies at sea so that she can go back and be with her Rebecca. Yeah, consumed like by the sea like Rebecca was. Yeah. I liked the ending a lot. I think it did a really good job of maintaining the tension all the way up into the end. Yeah. With all, all the twists. Like, oh, she wasn't actually pregnant. She, she had cancer. And yeah. then even in like the final minute it's still squeezing out the tension with the, the drive back to mandalay and the, the violins and 
something's up like yeah something's when wrong. you start going uh, when you start uh, seeing the like orange in the sky you're like oh shit something, yeah. yeah something's definitely wrong the glow of the trees yeah you just pit in your stomach it, it maintains its ability to uh, signal that something is wrong without giving specific clues as to what exactly is wrong so it just leaves you with this yeah. this nebulous tension that grows and grows yeah i like this movie a lot i really enjoyed it it's it did a, a good job at uh, keeping me on my toes through the whole thing i was entertained i love some of the visuals there was some really good play with with light it was it Yo. was a really good noirish movie a really good thriller yeah the lighting in mandalay like mandalay is a character unto itself yes with the, the didn't really mention the synopsis because there's nothing to write about but there are a lot of shots of, of lucy just like walking through corridors and, and inspecting rooms and just yeah the coldness of it the overwhelming nature of it the the menace yeah like you feel without anything being said that yeah she's out of place and it, it really does legitimately feel like the building itself like resents her presence mm -hmm. like it doesn't want her there yeah the only thing having watched the the remake the only thing that i wished the the original had done better was the relationship between maxine and and lucy honestly because it doesn't seem that loving no it's it's very cold the entire time until he reveals to her that he hated rebecca whereas in the remake they have a lot more of a loving sensual and sexual relationship which makes it to me a little bit creepier when he gets those blows when he gets mad at her and it's I don't know. I, I just thought that that aspect of their relationship was um, more well done in the remake than it was in the original movie. I completely agree. Like I said before, it, it, it just feels like someone playing with dolls and just like bashing them together. Anytime they interact with each other yeah. and talk about their romance, it just it feels like very naive and, and simple. And I really wonder if it's... If that's how they wanted the actors to play their roles, or if it was that there was no chemistry between them. The, the characters are not the strong point of this movie. The strong point is the uh, meticulous nature of the plot and the, the visuals. Yeah. Hitchcock seems to be much better at yeah, saying things through visuals than saying things through dialogue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can agree with that. That holds true for some of his other movies that that I've seen, like uh, Rear Window and Vertigo. They're very, they definitely have the same, the same feel. I go up and I, I go, go down. down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Their relationship it it does not it doesn't feel good until you have you ironically have the reveal that he murdered his first wife. <laughs> Yeah. Because well, at least that gives an explanation for how cold he's been. Yeah, he doesn't feel like he's into it at all until that point. Yeah, he's he's very muted and distant when they first meet, as evidenced by that scene where she asks why he's giving her attention, and he just basically calls her an idiot and tells her she can walk home. 
and then from her side it just feels like this very naive schoolgirlish like oh i met a prince he's going to whisk me away and i'm going to have a fairy tale life yeah. and like neither one of them really understands what a relationship is and so they're both making a mistake but in different ways yeah it, it does not feel good in the beginning but then you have they turn it around yeah. and they turn it around in a convincing way yeah at the end of the the remake what i appreciated too is that you see them you know mentally has has been burned down and they go on this second honeymoon and there you see them actually happy also just being away from everything else and uh they end up in a little hotel in cairo and it just yeah it's they, it felt it felt good that the movie they make violent love behind a palm tree not behind a palm tree but there's definitely love going on love making going on so it felt good that the remake ended there too that uh, that you see them being able to leave Medley behind and go off on their own new adventures together yeah shock endings see like a thing that would be more in vogue back in these times yeah wanting to just yeah do something shocking and then it, just leave the audience with that yeah well and then also this was still in the code era of hollywood so there's not as much as they could do whereas audiences today would definitely be longing for more of a, a sensualized sexualized maybe uh relationship between the characters so that's definitely something that they're getting in the remake yeah also super impressive to make Rebecca such a presence in this movie and never once ever show her on screen. Yeah, well, we understand that that painting where uh, Mrs. De Winter gets the idea for her costume. That's not Rebecca. That's not Rebecca? No, you and I thought it was Rebecca. Yes. But that's just... It's just that Rebecca wore that same dress from that same picture the right. previous year. That's not her. But the person in the in the painting has dark hair like her, so that's why you could be you could be led to think that it, that it was Rebecca, but apparently not. I think if it was Rebecca, Mrs. Danvers would have pointed it out. I it was I'm fairly certain that it was just a, a past family member yeah he said it uh, she said it, it's maxim's favorite aunt or something like that. something along those lines yeah. yeah we we never so much as see a picture or anything of her we only hear her name you even pointed out when we wa were watching the movie that there's a plaque on the painting that if she wanted to to know who it was or anything she could see she could just read the plaque and see yeah, what, who it was we figured out that it was the Danvers was trying to, to set her up immediately. Yeah. We thought that the picture was Rebecca. So as she was walking by to go to the party, I was yelling, just read the plaque. Just read the plaque. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It does a really good job at making her a haunting presence without ever being actually present Yeah, it, physically. It, she is Mandalay. That's why it's so fitting that Mandalay is destroyed at the end. Yeah. It's the end of Rebecca. Yeah. The end of Rebecca, the end of Danvers, the end of that evil that Maxim has been living with. Yeah, it's a it's a cleansing fire. Yeah. It's um, exercising the the ghosts. The demon is finally put to rest. Yeah, and I I know that this is you know rewriting the story, but if 
Danvers came with Rebecca when he married her. Why not just get rid of Danvers when Rebecca died? Yeah. Why not just, you know, get a yeah? Why not just cleanse the uh, her aura from <laughs> the house and just getting new staff? I think he has a throwaway line in the very opening of the movie about how he hasn't been to Mandalay in a long time. Yeah. So I think he just, after uh, he accidentally killed Rebecca, he just fled for a long time. Mm -hmm. And this is his return. So that's why everything is still in this place because he just didn't want to think about it. Yeah, didn't want to bother. Yeah, just let the estate run itself while he goes and has a meltdown. Yeah. That was a good one. It was a good one. We're we're starting the, the new decade off with a banger. Yeah. Appreciate it. I don't know that I'm going to remember it like very vividly for long, but I definitely enjoyed watching it and I think it's it's definitely worth going high and the on the list. It feels like the craft is evolving. Yes, definitely. Much the same way I felt in Grand Hotel. Both aesthetically but also uh plot wise. Yes. Plots are getting better, uh expression uh, of visual language and metaphor is getting better yeah it's yeah we're it's evolving the the medium is evolving and it's cool to see yeah it's a great start to a new decade i hope this trend continues i hope there's more hitchcock on the best picture winners me too all right so where do you think you're gonna put it on your list i need to see my list (laughs) i so on my list i put it at number five i put it uh, right now my list looks like number one wings number two all quiet on the western front number three cavalcade number four the great zigfeld number five rebecca number six the life of emile zola seven it happened one night eight you can't take it with you nine mutiny on the bounty ten the barroom melody eleven grand hotel twelve cimarron and thirteen gone with the wind I thought that it it definitely, it wasn't as grandiose visually as the great Ziegfeld, but it was right there. It was definitely better than anything else that's under it uh, on my list. So it's at number five right now. Yeah. It might be the first movie that's been able to, or at very least the one that's done the best job of making us as an audience feel the appropriate emotions yeah because there have just been so many misses and unintentional comedic moments yeah throughout the the movies and 30s to, so to watch a movie that makes you feel the way it intends to make you feel it's the that but also it's the first movie that is pleasant and pleasing both aesthetically and for the story as well like we've had a lot of movies where it was one or the other but i, I feel like we haven't really had a movie yet that had both. Yeah. And nothing racist in it, right? Nothing racist. Misogyny, of course. <laughs> you can't escape that in this era, but we did as good as we could do. Yes. For the time. Yeah. I think this is going to be number two. All right. On my This this is a better movie than Cavalcade. I cannot pretend. <laughs> I like I like Cavalcade for, uh, you know, chuckle fuck reasons. Right. I, I like Cavalcade ironically. I like Rebecca unironically. And I can acknowledge that 
it is a better movie than Grand Hotel, but personally, I like Grand Hotel more just for the setting and the style and, and the Baron. And Similarly, like we were talking about the other day on the retrospective episode that the hotel in itself feels like it's a character, that it has its own personality, yeah. the same way that Menderley, uh has in this movie. I was just about to say that. Yep. Great minds think alike. I seem, I seem to like uh, movies that are about uh, specific places yeah. and give that place a character. Yeah. Can you give us your list? My list is number one, Grand Hotel, number two, Rebecca, number three, Cavalcade, number four, Wings, number five, Mutiny on the Bounty, number six, The Life of Emile Zola, number seven, The Great Zegfield, number eight, All Quiet on the Western Front, number nine, It Happened One Night, Number 10, You Can't Take It With You. Number 90, Broadway Melody. Number 91, Cimarron. And number 92, Gone with the Wind. (laughs) (laughs) Where it shall remain. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. We know for you that you'll have one more going below this one, probably. Below Gone with the Wind? I don't think it's going to beat Gone with the Wind. Okay. It might beat Cimarron. It might come in second worst place, but... God, I hope we never watch anything worse than Gone with the Wind. (laughs) Okie dokie. All right. Uh, What's the name of our next movie? How Green Was My Valley. Oh, boy. (laughs) That could be anything. I have a bad feeling it's going to involve horses. (laughs) I wonder if if it's a play on word with the expression, oh, the grass is always greener somewhere else. Something like that. Maybe. Mm, I'm getting bad saquin rose-tinted glasses feelings from this. This is going to be romanticizing some period from the past. Please, God, no. Well, we'll get in the, we'll have our answer next week on the next episode. Yep. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you next time. Okay, that's it, that's it, that's it.